Yeah, a hammering would be one thing, but it's, 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 they're doing the like grinding, like I don't know if it's like a saw or if it's like sanding or something. And it's funny because I mean, because so actually, this this podcast is going to have a different character than usual because uh, as as listeners have noted in the past, usually when we record, it's it's. I would say morning, but it's more like noonish your time, and it's like middle of the night my time, and I am usually drinking scotch. But now, <laughs> <laughs> but now it is it is morning my time and, and evening your time, which means I'm drinking coffee and sparkling water. So my character may be different, but yes, we also have to put up with environmental noise. They've been doing it for a while now, and I I, I think I have gotten used to it. So I don't even it didn't even occur to me until I sat down like, oh crap, I forgot this stupid construction is going on. So anyhow. That's a long-winded introduction to if there's weird grinding noises, uh, I, I, I apologize. It's, it's not me, it's the construction. Uh, I, too, am drinking coffee and, and sparkling water. You're going to be up all night. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, speaking of Serenity Caldwell, I, I have some follow-up here. I forgot this last week. I should have done it last week. Um, Serenity and I, two episodes ago, were talking about my inability to, I, all I wanted to do, because I have a brand new 256 gigabyte iPhone. And one of the things I wanted to do is just put all of my music on it because my music library is, uh, let's see if I can find it here. Less than 256 21 gigabytes. gigabytes. I have 4,000 songs, 21 gigabytes. So, you know, it's not that big, but uh you know big but but not not that big um easily fits on 256 megabyte iphone and that way just put it all over there and then i never have to worry i get on an airplane i can be out in the sticks i can i could lose my sim card and i've got all my music um and there's i could for the life of me couldn't figure out how to do it because I'm also using iCloud Music Library. Like, if I didn't use iCloud Music Library, I could do it the old-fashioned way, where I just plug it into my Mac by the lightning cable, and then you'd, in iTunes, go over to Music and say, sync everything, and then hit a button and, you know, wait for it to be done, and then, boom, there's all my music. But you can't do that with if you have iCloud Music Library on. When you go to music on your Mac, when it's connected, it just says you're using iCloud Music Library. Do it all that way. Um, and Serenity, who knows a lot more about this stuff than I do, because uh, she actually like <laughs> you know writes all these like detailed how to. She was stumped too. Um, anyway, long story short, the best way to do this, and I've I've so far I've had a bunch of people on Twitter email. A whole bunch of people have given me the solution. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's, uh, but long story short, the way you can do this, the only workaround, the best workaround anybody can think of, is you create a smart playlist that matches all music. Um, let's see what my criteria are. Oops, started playing music. <laughs> uh, here, if I edit smart, I tried to uh, double click a smart playlist to show the the credentials here if media kind uh or no match match music for all of the following and i put size is less than 300 megabytes so any audio file any music file that's less than 300 megabytes and it'll be matched by the the playlist and i said 300 megabytes i don't even know why it's an arbitrary arbitrary number um but i have a couple of really big audio files that i do want synced to the iphone like i have the uh did you ever hear of these, Ben? The uh, Criterion Collection 
Shami's dot, uh, uh, James Bond, uh, uh, director's commentaries. No, I have not. Uh, Merlin Mann turned, turned me on to these a long time ago. So when the, the long story short, when the first, uh, laser discs of the criterion collection, uh, bond movies came out, uh, like the, 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 the Connery era ones. So you got like, uh, you know, Goldfinger and Dr. No and From Russia With Love. The the commentaries weren't approved by Eon Productions. And there's there's some really interesting stuff on them. Like uh, the editor, uh, oh, I forget his name, but the guy who edited uh, Goldfinger more or less threw the director under the bus about some totally mismatched shots and camera angles that made it a disaster to put together. And once you hear him say it, you can Peter, see Peter it. Hunt. Peter Hunt, exactly, who went on to direct um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which I thought was a terrible movie, but some people love. Um, <laughs> I, but, I was just thinking that. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. But but Peter Hunt really throws... <laughs> Throws the uh, I forget who directed that one. Was it a guy Hamilton who directed uh, uh, Goldfinger? Uh, I'm looking it up. Or maybe that was Goldfinger the first one. Guy Hamilton is didn't yeah, Guy Hamilton. All right, yep. so no, he, throws guy him, Hamilton. he throws him under the bus about some mismatched footage, and it's that opening scene where where Bond is at uh, uh, the Fountain Blue down in Miami, and uh, Felix Leiter shows up and everything gets started. But shot, they shot some of it outdoors at, at like a real outdoor resort and some of it on a soundstage. And it was just a mismatch. Anyway, uh, once Eon Productions got, you know, you know, they were like, wow, this is, this is really some fascinating behind the scenes stuff. When they listened to it, they, they made the Criterion people pull it from like future editions. So anyway, I've got copies of these things as MP3 files. They're almost, almost 300 megabytes. Uh, and so that's why I picked it. But anyway, Long story short, make a playlist, smart playlist that will match all music. Then you go over to your phone and you can go to the playlist and then you can hit the cloud button for that playlist, which will, which means download all the songs on this playlist. But since the playlist matches all of your songs, it will download all of your songs. But Apple seemingly goes way out of its way to deliberately make that something that you can't do. Like, cause when you go to the, without going to playlist, if you just go to all music, there is no cloud button. Yeah, well, I guess the question is, do they deliberately go out of their way to make it difficult, or is it just general, the, the general malaise that is the case with iTunes and Apple Music? It's, I think in this case, it's deliberate. I think that they want you to sin sort of... commission or sin of omission. Yeah, I word. think it's sort of like you're supposed... But it's very frustrating, I think, for people like... Uh, I, I don't know. Every single every year when my wife gets a new iPhone, there's a time where I I catch an earful because she goes to the gym and her iPhone doesn't have any music on it, even though she, her last one did. And then she did a full backup and restore and, you know, do everything you can to say, make my new iPhone just like my last one. And then there's every year, none of her music. And she's, you know, like at the gym that she goes to, there's no signal, you know, you can't, it's not like you can download the stuff every year. And I just don't yeah, think, it, I don't think it's that much to ask. Yeah, the the whole it's interesting. I haven't I haven't really thought about this uh, a, a ton, but you know, I use I the streaming services, the various ones, and it's funny. I actually have it's really frustrating because I I actually have a subscription to both Spotify and Apple Music, and the reason is that uh, when I'm in, or I think we're going to talk about Siri in a little bit. When I'm but when I'm in the car uh, driving with the kids, like that, I always like to request songs, and so using Siri is is obviously preferable when you're driving. 
And so it's worth it for that. But then like my stereo has like Spotify Connect, which is which is really great. Like I can play stuff from my phone or whatever and it just and it just plays on the stereo. It's not like it's kinda like how a Chromecast works where mm-hmm. you control it, but it's not like streaming like AirPlay, which is it, it just it's a much better model. It works much better, at least at least for me. And now, like the Amazon has come out with their service that that will play on the Echo. We have we have an Echo set up, um, and it was like, well, it, boy, that'd be convenient. It, it does have Spotify as well, so it, it it works. But yeah, this this whole like yes, there's the allure of having all the music and having access to it, but and it's like the upfront cost is much lower, but the costs at the back end of like actually playing your music, there's all these sort of hidden costs that that are there, and it. You know, I, I'm 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 paying it for it now, like quite literally. But th- th- it's really re. It's funny. The music industry is all about like yes, they of course they're motivated to have their music everywhere, but they're reinforcing these silos uh, with with this sort of new model. I mean, like if you have in, if you're not only all Apple, if you're not only all whatever service, you're kind of stuck in the middle, and it, it is pretty frustrating. Yeah, and I I don't know. I don't know how much of it is related to the fact that if you buy, say, a 32-gigabyte iPhone, you don't want your 20-gigabyte library synced over. And yes, they have the optimized storage feature for that, for music, and they have it for the photos, too. But it certainly would be very easy for somebody with a 32-gigabyte device to, to you know run up against the limit. And so maybe that's why. I don't know. But it's... Yeah, that's a good point. They probably sell more of the of the the lower cost phones. I mean, if you look at the average selling prices, that's, it is weighted in that direction. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I admit that I guess the idea of, I want all of my entire music on my device all the time is sort of an old fashioned. I'm still thinking like it's the iPod era, but I, I actually find it useful a lot, or at least every time I yeah. fly, every time I fly, if I want to, yeah, <laughs> no, it, 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 I should do that now. Cause yeah, I, I've, um, my my, I, I realized my big storage issue with phones, and so I got this is the first time I've gotten the absolute largest one. I, I think I had a sixty four previously, and and it, I bumped up against the limits over over this over this last year. But my big culprit is is podcasts. I think my yeah. the Overcast app was occupying like sixteen gigabytes or something like that, or something ridiculous. Uh, because all like all accumulate ones that I want to listen to, or I'll get recommendations, and they'll just be sitting in there, and. Uh, who knows if I'll ever listen to them, but yeah, it, you can just, that, that's for me, that's, that's the big culprit where I accumulate stuff, but I don't know. It's, we, yeah, we were just talking before, like the, there's, there, there's still like these, these, these rough edges of, of the, having everything in the cloud is convenient, but, but yeah, airplanes is, is definitely a big one for me. I travel a lot and it's, there's nothing more frustrating than being in a, a place where, you just you just can't get it and you're you're, yeah. you're stuck. I've actually actually speaking of like old school iTunes and iPods, I got a so this company called Underwater Audio waterproofs uh, iPod shuffles and they sell waterproof headphones so that you can listen while while swimming, uh, which is I mean, it, it's a it's amazing. Like it, it I mean I've I, you know exercise is is already miserable enough, but to be actually like listen to podcasts or whatever while you're doing it is is great. The problem is. And it took me a while to figure this out. Is I, so I loaded a bunch of podcasts onto the shuffle, which is already a pain because I have to go like use iTunes and it's not synced with Overcast and all that sort of stuff. But I get there, I get to the pool, and and I can't. I'm stuck on the first podcast, 
and I can't go to the next one. You hit the next button on the iPod Shuffle, what would you expect to happen? You think it would go to the, to the next track. It doesn't. It turns out that with the last iPod Shuffle, you have to use VoiceOver. <laughs> well, it turns out VoiceOver doesn't work very well when you're in the pool. So, and there's no mic. Anyhow, yeah, you can, there's a way around. You can like hold down the VoiceOver button and then the next button, and the next buttons work. It's super complicated. It makes no sense at all. But yeah, anyhow, you know, it's, it's been it's been really eye opening. But beyond that, just like having to use iTunes again and actually sync stuff and like manually manage things, like you really appreciate this idea that like I can subscribe to podcasts or I can have the music and it's just there and you don't have to think about it. To actually have to like pre plan what I'm going to listen to, it's it's like man, we 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 lived like savages for a long time. Oh. <laughs> huh. uh... Uh, good segue to my next bit of follow up. Now, this is from last week's show, or I always say last week, even though it's sort of like on a ten day schedule. But the previous episode when uh, Ben, uh, not Ben, you're Ben, uh, <laughs> Matt, Matthew Panzerino was on, and we were talking about the AirPods and about how the the biggest minus, the only significant, the only serious minus about them to me is that they don't have the little buttons for play pause and up down for volume and because it's not so much the play pause because the 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 whole idea where you just take the one out and it pauses and you put it back in and it plays works really really well in almost every situation in fact in some situations it works even better um than the button because for me a lot of the times it's like if i've got them on because i'm listening to something and i'm in a store uh, like grocery shopping, and then I get to the register, I always like to take my headphones out or at least take one out so that I don't look like I'm listening to something. And so to integrate the play pause and the taking out of a, of a, of a, you know, one of the AirPods, it works great. But what you, what I miss is like the next track, previous track, like the shortcuts, like by double clicking that you used to be able to do. Um, and I said, that you can't use Siri to change the volume. So when you double tap one of the AirPods and you say like, turn the volume up or turn the volume down, it doesn't work. You have to change the volume either from your Apple Watch if you have one or by taking your getting to your phone and using the volume buttons on the phone. Turns out I was wrong, 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 wrong. You can definitely change the volume by Siri. You can do next track, previous track. I, I did it the one time. I tried it. I did try it, and and I said, uh, turn the volume up. And I was outside, which might have been the problem. Uh, and Siri said, I'm sorry, I can't do that, John. And I took that as meaning that she completely understood what I asked, but was telling me that I, I can't do this. And this you know we might get back to this later about Siri. <laughs> yeah, I but think uh, so. it, my fault, it really is my, my laziness that but I interpreted that, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like she said, uh, sorry, I didn't understand you. She said, I'm sorry, I can't do that, John. And so I took it as meaning volume control is something that was outside the control of Siri. Turns out I was completely wrong. Um, uh, a couple of people who have AirPods corrected me on that. Now, obviously, you know, there's not many people who have AirPods at the time. Um, but then I tried it again, and it does work. You could say volume up, volume down, turn the volume up, turn the volume down, next track, go back a track, previous track. Uh, I don't have a full list of it, but you know, there's synonyms that work like go back a track and previous track are the same thing. Um, those can all you work. Skip? Can you, can you do like the skip 15 seconds or th- sort sort of thing? I mean, it was like the, the headphones, if you like, I, again, I use overcast. If you, so Mark was it set up, like if you double click, like it will skip 
30 seconds. You can set the, the whatever whatever length you want. I, I don't know. I don't know what happens in Overcast. I suspect if I say next track, I didn't try it. I suspect if I said next track in Overcast, it would just go to the next podcast. I don't think. That, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't think it could. Amp- you know, what I mean, I think. I think with the clicker, Marco could could hook into it in a way that I don't think Siri would enable. But uh, well, I, well, now I, now we just set a follow, follow up follow up for, for the next, next podcast. <laughs> Listen uh, in next week. <laughs> a couple of people then wrote in. I don't think I don't think Matthew and I talked about it, but a couple people have said if you have like one of the pains in the butt. If you do have the watch, it's a little bit easier. If you need, if you don't want to use a, a Siri to do it. But you still have to bring up, like if you're in a workout, which is often the situation I'm in where I do want to adjust the volume, uh, like I'm out running, uh, and like it gets noisy. Like if I'm running through a noisier traffic neighborhood and I want to turn the volume up because I can't hear anymore. Um, on the watch, you still have to poke around a little bit to get to a screen where you can adjust the volume. Like you've either, you, you know, the easiest way, in my opinion, is to just get to the now playing glance. Um, which I keep as the first glance. So it's usually not, you know, it's like one tap, tap on the sidebar, then tap on now playing. And then once you're on now playing, you can actually change the volume by spinning the crown, which is really, really nice when your fingers are sweaty or something like that. You don't have to poke at the little buttons on screen. But it would be kind of nice if you could somehow set a preference so that if there's music playing right now through your, either your phone or the watch, um, that you could use the crown from like the, watch face to change the volume because right now the crown on the watch face does nothing it would be kind of nice if it would change the volume so so when you when you spin the crown on the watch face it does it does it no longer zoom into like that app view no okay in watch os3 it does nothing and it doesn't do they actually if you're on the app view it does zoom you back towards the watch face right but when you're on the watch face what it used to do in watch os2 is it gave you the time time travel or whatever they called it, and they yeah. Well, it used to be that you would zoom in. Yeah, yeah. And it was funny because I, I I I've observed people who aren't technical users, and that was for sure one of the things that always got them frustrated. Like I was actually seen by a guy on a plane who was he was, he was wearing an Apple Watch. I was asking about it, you know, how he liked it, and he generally liked it. But that was he like that the fact that he's like it keeps zooming in and I don't know why like that was the one thing that was driving him absolutely up the wall so I didn't realize that they had changed it I guess I'm so accustomed to not yeah. even touching it that that I, I didn't notice but I think in general I would I wouldn't be surprised if you know I clearly and I think we we're, we're definitely both in agreement in this like Apple there were some unfortunate decisions that were made about how the watch watch should be used in version one I think they kind of they went too far down the road of prescribing how people would use it instead yep. of waiting to understand how people want it, you know, would actually use it. And one of the casualties of that, I think, was the functionality of the buttons in general. And so, yeah, so like in version one, pressing that button was like the whole contacts, like personal communication crap, whatever, which is now completely gone. But in general, I think there's still that sort of, it's not fully realized the potential of those buttons. Like that, but the button should be much more usable. And I bet over time will become even more usable in apps. And same thing with the digital crown. Like what you're talking about makes perfect sense. If music is playing, why shouldn't that be volume? And especially if they're going to f- pursue this focus of being health and fitness, where a touchscreen that that's like the worst possible scenario for a touchscreen, and it's an example of how the they're they're kind of the health and fitness focus is a is was clearly not 
what they're thinking about from day one. It was a part of it, but it wasn't like the thing that it's for. Because I think there's things they would have done differently. And and one of those things they would have done differently is how those buttons are used. And so I would imagine in, in, in like watchOS 4, for example, they're going to move even more to those buttons being actual use in the crown, being actual usable controls. Um, right now, if you're in a workout, you and you have you know the workout thing is on your um you know on your that's what you see when you're you know because you're doing a walk or a run or something when you spin the crown it just changes the focus from the different things on the screen like if i'm i'm trying you know i'm doing a fake run right now and as i spin it down it goes from the elapsed time to the active calories to the heartbeat you know and just folk changes focus i would i would find it much more useful to have that change the volume honestly that's just me. Yeah, well, I think, I, yeah, and I went, again, this, it's one of those things where they, they changed so much in OS 3. Like, they really just fundamentally changed how the operating system worked. And you're not going to get everything in kind of one go, yeah. which is fine. Like, I think that's that's the mistake I think they made in version 1. Like, the, it, was over, it was over-prescribed the way you ought to use it without really... I think having an understanding of how people would use this. I mean, you go back, this is what made the the, the first phone in particular so, you know, so smart is well. There's this classic story in in design talk, like I'm sure you've heard it a million times, but uh, where uh, there's some school or whatever where they they built up this whole new area of the campus or something like that, and instead of putting in sidewalks, they put in like this really nice grass, and then they observed where the grass got worn down, and then they put sidewalks there. And like that's that's just a and you can see there's other examples where there's like a path and right next to it there's like worn down grass because people are like taking like little shortcuts and stuff like that. And with the phone in particular, Apple really took sort of the grass approach where they got the basics there. They got a browser, they got a phone, they got an iPod, and then the rest of it was really you know that period where folks like you know Craig Hockenberry or whatever were, were figuring out the API and were building you know, sideloaded applications, I think was really valuable to to help Apple really understand what needed to be built and, and how they should go about, you know, opening up the API and what, what things might be possible. And that's the exact opposite process they did with the watch. Like the watch that it was it was they did too much. There wasn't enough of a sort of open canvas to figure out what what works and what doesn't and now they're having to kind of unwind what they did before and that's just going to take time i don't know if that that story is apocryphal or not the story about the paths on campus but uh i remember it's a great story though it is a great story (laughs) and it's there's a truth to it because i remember at drexel when i was there in the late 90s there were definite dirt paths through grass you know that were they're obviously there forever that clearly they should have, you know, I remember when I first heard that story, I thought specifically about certain areas. Uh, uh, if anybody went to Drexel, it was then, I don't know if they even called it, the campus at Drexel has changed so much since I went there, but we used to, you know, we called it the quad, uh, the section off uh, Market Street. Um, they're definitely, it was, I mean, it couldn't have been more exactly like that story. Like, here's a plate, you know, you're supposed to walk all the way over there and go around this building, and everybody just cut through right here. Um, I can think of two examples in Apple's history where the Apple's done that, and but they're both like classic Mac. You remember the classic Mac OS? You didn't use the Mac back then, did you? Uh, I do remember it. I, I, but yeah, no, I did not. Two things I can think of would be Command Tab, um, where that was, that was a Windows 
invention where you'd hit command tab and originally in command tab in windows you would just cycle through apps in most recently used order and it was you know obviously windows users took to it but then where where it really became a good interface was when they put up the heads up display that showed you where you know all of your apps in most recent order so you could see oh i need to go four to get to excel you know, right. you'd actually see it. It used to not have that heads-up display. It would just switch through the apps, you know, and you'd find out which app you were getting to each time you hit tab. Um, and it became a thing where there were, I don't know, three or four competing third-party utilities for Mac OS that did the exact same thing, and everybody had one of them installed. I mean, it was, yep. I, I don't I don't. it was one of those things where I don't know anybody who didn't. And eventually Apple acquiesced, I don't know which... Uh, version of mac os it was but they added it as a as a system level thing and i think they delayed on it because i think there was a sort of reluctance to add anything that came to windows first to the mac <laughs> um, yeah probably <laughs> and then the other but one no, I, the other one i could think of was the old apple menu um used to just be original the original mac os the uh, apple menu had i think it's i think it had, still had like about had the about for like whatever app you're in, like about this app would be like the first item in, in the uh, um, Apple menu. And then the rest of it was just a list of your desk accessories, which were like the little, and this is super old. This is like going back to the eighties, Mac OS, which were the little uh, in DOS terms. What were they used to call it in DOS? The little in way you'd get multitasking like little in-app resident in resident. I, I have no, I, I got nothing for you. Sorry. Uh, well, I'll think of it. Um, but anyway, desk accessories were little things that ran within the memory of the app itself. So like the calculator and the, uh, there was a thing called the scrapbook, which was sort of like a clipboard history. So you could keep like little snippets of text, uh, and third party utilities came up that made the Apple menu way more useful so that you could put like an alias to your hard drive in there. So you could just go to the Apple menu, go down to your hard drive and get a hierarchical list of every folder, you know, so you wouldn't have to go to the finder and go to your hard drive and double click on a folder and then double click on a folder and double click. You would just go to your Apple menu, go to your hard drive, go to applications, go to utilities and then launch the app from that folder that you wanted to or wherever you wanted to go. But you, instead of leaving a whole history of windows behind of each folder you went to, you, it was just a hierarchical list of menus. And then event and everybody, and that was another one of those things where everybody had one of these uh, utilities. I think the one that I used was called now menus. Boy, it's really going back, but eventually Apple added that to the system as well. It was like, Hey, if everybody's got this, you should, it, it ought to be part of the system. Yeah, the only um, it's funny the, the only the two add-ons that I still depend on now is one is is from Windows and the, because when I use Windows I like there there's shortcuts to manage to move your windows around so you can like snap your windows to one side of the one side of the desktop or to another or things like and do all kinds of things so once uh, I have one of those on on the Mac and I use one called Better Snap Tool but it, that's amazing but that's super niche I doubt Apple will will ever add that. But the other thing, and it's funny because uh, this is it's this is arguably the single thing that keeps me using a Mac instead of like a a, a Chromebook or or uh, an iPod or anything is a clipboard manager. It like it's unbelievable how often I use something like that and how 
much more powerful that makes that makes using using a computer. But again, I guess they they already t those are pretty niche. They've already used all the uh, taken up all the all the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Uh, which clipboard manager do you use? Uh, I use one called Copy and Paste. Really? I used to use Launch. Yeah, I used to use Launchbar, but Launchbar had this weird bug where it would just it wouldn't work after a while, and they eventually fixed it after it was around for like years, and people were complaining about, it, and they kept saying it was Apple's fault. But like every, every other clipboard manager had the problem. But yeah, so I use. Uh, I don't remember why I got it. I I mean, I got it for when I would need a replacement, and there's a good review somewhere. But I've seen no reason to switch. It works well for me. You could it keeps a bunch in there. You can do stuff like if you've if you've copied stuff, you can paste it as plain text super easily. You can make everything all capitals or take away all the capitals like it, it so it does like text transformation on stuff as well if you need so anyhow but there's a bunch of them out there i think they're all probably pretty good uh the ones i've used are launch bars built-in one which i kind of don't like the display of but uh it, it's actually what i'm using right now um keyboard maestro you ever hear a keyboard maestro yeah i've heard of it i i I've I can't remember if I tried it, but keyboard yeah, maestro does so much stuff. Keyboard maestro uh, is a great utility. It's, it's you could like record macros that do all sorts of things. But really, just sort of automate, you know, multi-step, you know, automate the whole GUI really. Um, but it also is sort of you can if you want it to act as like text expander where you type, you know, TLA and it expands to three-letter acronym or something like that. And it has a clipboard history. Um, Keyboard Maestro's clipboard history is searchable, which is actually kind of neat. And Keyboard Maestro, oh, that, that's yeah, that would be awesome. Keyboard Maestro has a heuristic that looks for things that look like a password and uh, and bullets them out. So, and I, I think only keeps them as I forget what else it does. If it adds, if it's just a visual thing or if it if it only lets you copy, you know, actually paste it when it's the topmost thing. But whatever it does. It's actually never, never once did the wrong thing for me. Like the heuristic is so smart about it that, it, however it is that it works, it's so smart about uh, about identifying things that look like wow, that looks like a we, you know, like a, a a a password that that somebody would make up or that like a password utility would make up that it doesn't get exposed. And then the one that's most recent, which I've used, I used in beta, but I I've, it hasn't stuck with me is Pastebot from the Tweetbot guys. Yeah, uh, the uh, the searchable one it would be super valuable. I think because when I do the daily updates in particular, where uh, th those usually have more quotes and links than than my weekly articles do, like I will accumulate a ton of links in the process of writing just one of them. And yeah, sometimes, particularly if I want to look something up, like I, I write about something and then I forgot, because I end up having like. I will end up with like well over 100 tabs every single day after I'm finished writing these, <laughs> it's, which is ridiculous. And so I often find it's easier to just, and this is how I get a bunch of tabs, instead of going through all my tabs and finding the article that I'm looking for, I'll just open a new window and go to my clipboard manager and I know the links in there because yeah. I, I, I just use it. But if I could search it, that would make it even better. I, I, yeah, it's, I, it's funny the weird things that you end up doing that are just yeah. make no sense at all, but you fall into these patterns, so. All right, I will put links to all of those apps in the in the show notes. I swear. <laughs> hey, I, I mean, for the record, I, I think this is my I don't know sixth or seventh time on here, and I got a message. Uh, I woke up to a message from you, including notes notes for the podcast. I was very impressed. I think that that is a first. So, uh, for the record, uh, the talk show is getting ever more organized. 
so, so kudos to you. We're doing it. It's the same thing. We talked about it on uh, with uh, Panzerina last week. We're using the uh, iCloud shared notes, which is actually pretty uh, pretty useful. It is, except that the oh, yeah, I, 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 maybe because I'm I'm not I'm not in Siri yet. I don't update my Mac for usually a couple months after after the update. Um, but yeah, it doesn't sync to my iCloud on the Mac, right? Be, but that might be just because I'm not on the current version. But it, it reminded me of like the one of the the irritations I have with like Apple, uh, like when they do web apps. So I have it open in the browser now because that that obviously syncs. But I think the the reason why Apple's web apps like try to mimic like desktop apps, but that makes them frustrating to use because. Any, you know, doing something in a browser isn't as efficient or fast or as good of a user experience as using a native app, without question. Whereas there are some web apps that I use, like I do all my writing in a web app, one, one called Draft, um, Drafting.com. It's awesome, but it's 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 a web like it embraces it being a web app, and I think that's the case for all sorts of products. Like if you embrace the medium that you're on, the user experience can be really great. But if you're trying to like mimic one that's from somewhere else, it's it's not it's not nearly as good. Anyhow, that that is just sort of a random sort of observation. <laughs> I mean, I mean <laughs> this is the first time I've used the the syncing or sharing note thing for notes. So. It's weird. I've been doing it for a couple episodes now, but I've been running. I, I'm like you. I'm very reluctant, and and it always seems like I've got something open. I don't want to restart, even just restart the machine. I still haven't updated my iMac to Sierra, so and that's where I record from. So I I have it on my phone, and the phone has the new fancy new share this note with somebody and get the changes synced feature, but my Mac's version doesn't. So, and then you had the idea to, to use the iCloud web app, which never even occurred to me because I never use, I never use the iCloud web app for anything other than find my iPhone. Um, But it's weird too, because it, it does try to mimic a desktop app, but, (laughs) but it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't look anything like the (laughs) the Mac version and it doesn't look like the iPad version either. It's like this, it does look like a desktop app, but it doesn't look like a Mac one, and it doesn't look like an iPad app. Yeah, who knows? Who knows what's going on? And there's all it's. it's I don't understand how anybody uses web apps, and it's because it's like I tried to use the shortcut Shift Command H to um, uh, make a text a header, which works in you know it's a keyboard shortcut I know from the desktop version of Notes, but of course Safari ate that keystroke and tried to uh, take me home. Yeah, but it was no, smart. Yeah, it- it was smart it enough works. to say, "Do you want to? Are you sure you want to do that? Because you've got unsaved changes in this text editing field." I would much yeah, prefer it, an app that just was like written in old nineteen ninety nine HTML. Yeah, the, the ones that I use, like the, they're ones that like they are they're, they're pure web. One, they're pure. They're they're for the web, like just unabashedly. And this is something like I think like. I think this is one of the reasons why Google Docs, some, especially, it's gotten better now, but you know, was very frustrating because it kind of was trying to mimic a desktop interface. I mean, obviously, Docs does some amazing things, particularly the, the collaboration stuff and all that. But I think the the apps that I actually like using on the web and like for like the writing one, for example, it's just a plain field, and you get the benefits of a web app where stuff's saved instantly, and and if anything happens like to your computer, like you you never lose data ever. Like it's to me, it, it works very well, but 
the uh, the other thing that I do that I think makes it much more tolerable is you. Oh, speaking of Mac utilities, is Fluid, where you you get like a single site browser and then you can make an icon. So basically, when I open like Draft, for example, or, or WordPress or Mailchimp, like the various you know web apps that I use frequently, they all have their own. They're like their own apps, and you you click, you make it in Fluid, and you click it, and it opens up with its own icon in the dock, and it's separate, and so it's not buried in my hundreds of tabs. It's like its own distinct entity, and to me that that's that's another app I cannot live without. Like if I actually had to use web apps inside a browser, like just I'm so disorganized in general, it'd be it'd be intolerable. But Fluid like makes it makes it feel like a normal app, which is just from a navigational <laughs> standpoint. <laughs> I have used Fluid in the past for once or twice when I had to use a web app because it's, it's sometimes you want it to be a command tab target, but it's it's not like a real app at all. It's terrible. No, no, I meant from a navigational standpoint. Right, where I know to your point where you can find it very easily and right. you can go to it. But again, but well, I think when you get apps that are mimicking desktop apps in the in the web, they they feel awful. But like again, just to use like draft as an example, like you open it up and you open an article and all it is is it's a blank page and you type and it's it's basically a text editor and it handles markdown and, and stuff like that. So it I find it there's lots of benefits I find from being a web app, including particularly the like say like I've never ever lost stuff that I've written ever because even if my computer were to crash or or something like stuff doesn't get corrupted, it, it's just it's, it's always there. And to me, it because it's it's not trying to do too much, it's not trying to put all these all these menu bars there and 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 make it feel like it's Word, but now it's on the web, kind of like Google Docs does and and all that sort of thing. It's perfectly. It's not. It's more than tolerable. It's 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 downright enjoyable to use, and those are the ones that that I really I really appreciate. I think I, it's been a while, but I know that for people of our generation, losing data on your computer used to be like part of a part of life. Yep, it was just like you. Oh, guess this this is my unlucky day, right? Like you know, your system would freeze up, the app would just crash and vanish. Uh, no apps. In the old days, did autosave. You were stuck with the last time you ever hit Command S, and everybody had a horror tale. I don't think it ever really happened to me in a catastrophic way, but everybody knew somebody at least. It wasn't like you had to know somebody who knew somebody whose brother. You knew somebody who had happened to, where they opened up, you know, Word or whatever they used, hit Command N, started writing their paper, got to the end, and that's when you know, like maybe when they went to hit Print, the print driver crashed. <laughs> And because they'd never saved, the whole thing was gone. It was just nightmares, irrevocable, and there was nothing you could do. Brutal. There was no like cache of of temporary save files. There's no no matter how much of an expert you were at computing, there was absolutely nothing you could do. And we just accepted that. Oh well, I guess I should have hit hit Command S. (laughs) I know we blamed ourselves. (laughs) I've written about this, but that that and it was actually that was the the main reason that was a common scenario was that that first Command S was sort of a pain in the ass because you'd have to pick a location and then pick a file name. And subsequent Command S's are always very easy because there's nothing else to do. You've already given it a location and a name and the Command S you just you know, in the old days, you did have to wait. You'd have to wait like a second or two for the actual file to write. But it, it was nowhere near as much of a, a cognitive hurdle of that first command S would, you know, you know, the right interface. I, I think this is one of those ways that the original Mac team got it wrong was in, in those days, if that's how it was going to be, where there was no autosave, 
when you hit Command N, instead of immediately giving you a new untitled window, it should have immediately forced you to pick a a a location and a file name. The well, that's, first thing I mean, you, that's before you get that window where you could start typing, you should have had to pick a location and file name. Well, I, mean, I think so. One of the things that's great about iOS, and, and this is another reason I use web apps, is the because iOS from the was from the ground up kind of designed that way, and apps in general are always saving and they're always syncing, you know, syncing what what they have to the cloud. There's no like distinct sort of save process. It's sort of integral to to how they work. So I have a lot of apps where I have a iOS version and then I have the web version on, on, on my Mac. And I like those because they're always in sync constantly. Whereas ones that have a Mac app and ones that have an iOS app, the Mac app, the, the sync is never like perfect every time. Like for me, like if I don't trust the sync that it's going to be synced up every single time, like it almost, like to me that's trumped like the user interface of like, of like using a, a native app, which I do prefer native apps in general. But if, it, if I don't have full confidence that it's going to be synced every single time, I will put up with the, with the web app just to have that, that knowledge that's always there. Cause to me having it, it always available is, is key. And I know that Apple, you know, tried to sort of rejigger the document model. What was it back in lion to make it more iOS like, Yeah, but the problem was, you know, I think I still that still drives me up the wall. Like, it, actually, I that's one of the reasons I stopped using iWork. I know they sort of added it back in bits and pieces, and there's some terminal commands you can get to like restore like the save as button and stuff. But I no, you hold down the option so key. Yeah. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Now? Yeah, I think you can you can add it permanently. I think there's a terminal command where you can uh-huh. you can have it in the menu permanently. So you have to press option every single time. But the I destroyed so many documents by forgetting to like duplicate and like the auto save because it's 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 like the path thing. Like once <laughs> once you have the muscle memory and you're used to doing it a certain way, even if that's not the best way, like you're it's it's it, at least for people who are who have been using it for years, it's it's like too late it, yeah. and. But anyhow, so now now I'm, now I'm stuck using web apps. But like I said, <laughs> in the right con- in the right context, I, I like them. So, uh, um, all right, we're 43 minutes in. We haven't talked about anything. Anyway, long story short, the, Airpo- <laughs> the Airpo- AirPods do have Siri commands. That was the best digression ever. Uh, I will say this though: those those Siri commands for controlling the audio on the AirPods. They do work, and and they've worked remarkably well ever since it was pointed out to me that they work. I don't know why it failed for me the first time, um, but they're not instantaneous. It's the double tap. There's a moment before you hear the Siri, okay, I'm listening, and then there's a moment after that before it'll actually catch everything you say. Um, so it works, but it's nowhere near as instantaneous as just clicking a button on your on the the earphone cable to just go volume up, volume up, or something like that. Interesting. Um, so the so the only controls that you have on the AirPods are trigger Siri or take them out of ear and pause. Right? Yes. There's, there's no extra like. Okay. There's nothing else. There's no and there's no options for like triple clip. You know, you double tap for Siri. There's no way to say that if I triple tap or quadruple tap or something like that to do something else. Maybe they'll do that in the future. Maybe not because it's a little, you know. Finicky. Overall, this is not a deal breaker for me by any part. I the only headphones I want to use other than the ones I use for podcasting are AirPods. Um, it's you know it is though the only minus I can think of with them. Huh, that's interesting. I, I'm I'm worried. I know you said that they fit better than the regular 
ear ones that which don't fit in my ears at at, at all. So I'm going to I'm going to get them. I'm very intrigued by them, but that that specific point is is a little bit of a it's weird. I can see both both cuz I have been in a situation where I both want to take them out of my ear, but then I also have to hit pause so that idea of it doing mm-hmm. it once is is really compelling. For the same situation like if you want to talk to somebody on and you you know, you want to take take, take out of your ear. But at the same time, I'm worried about fit and I'm worried about the yeah, the having that control. I use the I use the clicker. I have the Beats ones, and I use that clicker all the time. So. I did too with the Beats ones. All right, let's take a break and thank our first sponsor. It is our good friends at Backblaze. Backblaze, you know, you know these guys. They offer unlimited native backup for the Mac and for uh, a PC. I don't know. I've never used a PC, so. You know, you have to take their word for that. But on a Mac, I can guarantee you it is excellent. Uh, no credit card required, no risk. You get a 15-day free trial at backblaze.com slash during fireball. Uh, I say this every time. I wish that they would stop sponsoring the show because they would write to me and say, sorry, John, nobody is signing up anymore because everybody who listens to the talk show has signed up for Backblaze. I would love it. It would make me feel better. Even though I, I do like the money that they pay to sponsor the show, I would feel better knowing that everybody who is listening to this show has some sort of offline, out of their office backup. Use it in addition. Don't use it. You don't have to use it as your only backup. You could, in theory. I think backup is the one one of those things that really should be, uh, you know, you should have multiple layers of it. So use Time Machine. Use Super Duper or something like that to make a clone of your startup disk. Um, do those things. Hard drives, external hard drives are relatively cheap. You can buy them, you know, especially if you get the spinning disk ones. You can get them just for backup, and they're so cheap. Do it. But having a backup that's off-site is such a... It, it, I say it every time. It makes you sleep better. It is such a relief to know that everything. And Backblaze has no limit. So you think, well, I'd like to sign up, but I've got a giant you know, hard drive full of uh, all of these movies and, and photos. Uh, I don't want to have to decide what I back up. And it, it's unlimited. It doesn't matter. You pay five bucks per Mac per month. Five bucks a month for each Mac, and it doesn't matter how much you have. They'll just back it all up. The only hitch is that it just takes longer for that initial backup to actually upload everything you've got. So the more data you have, yes, there's no magic that will let uh, 10 terabytes update in an hour. It's not going to happen. But however long it takes, once it's updated, it just, you know, incrementally runs from there. It, I have never noticed it. I mean, I've been uh, talking about, uh, uh, problems with some other apps that take up space. I often have activity monitor running and I'm looking at apps that are taking up too much CPU. I've never seen Backblaze pop up in my list of CPU usage. It never slows down your machine. I have no idea when it runs. I don't know. I just set it to the default settings and let it go. I never notice and it's always there. And when I've checked just to see what's in my Backblaze, it's always up to date. It is an amazing service. Um, the Mac software is written by former Apple engineers. It's totally native. It's just a simple control panel in the system preferences. Uh, and there's no gimmicks or additional charges. There's no trick to this $5 a month per device thing. That's the offer, and that's it. Um, so go to backblaze.com slash daringfireball. Then they'll know you came from here. You get 15 days to try it free. Do that. You won't be charged a nickel before then. And then you just start paying after that. So my thanks to Backplace. Go sign up for them. Sign up your parents. Sign up anybody you know. Uh, get everybody backed up. I am a happy customer. 
It's a great service. All right, what else we got on the agenda? Did you see on Twitter? I tweeted uh, a couple like a week or two ago that Amy's watch fell apart. I did. Yes, uh, it's and it's funny because you. Well, I, I think you're going to describe what happened, but my wife has been complaining that her watch is getting really bad at heart rate monitoring. Oh, it's going to fall and, apart. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, so I guarantee it. She's probably like three weeks, three weeks. Uh, Ahead of Amy, uh, so that's what happened. So what? Amy has a thirty-eight millimeter uh, stainless steel Apple Watch that was yep, same as my watch. Just very early, maybe even ordered like when they first went on sale, and you know they were famously back ordered for a while. So sometime in May of last year is when she got it. Um, she's worn it not necessarily every day, but she's worn it most days, and she loves it for the fitness tracking. It is first and foremost a fitness tracker for her. She wears it when she works out. She wears it to fill her circles every day. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I'm not quite sure exactly, she just started vaguely – again, it's she blames me for everything that goes wrong with every Apple product. Um, it's not even like she asks for help. She just blames me. Um, <laughs> and she blamed me that she was getting less Seems credit better. less credit for things – and, you know, like some things like a workout in the gym, maybe, you know, some days you are feeling it and, you know, you're more motivated or you have more energy and you, you know, you, you, you know, in an hour doing the same exercise, maybe you, you do burn more calories because you're, you know, you were more into it, but she was getting less, fewer, uh, calories burn counted, even for things like walking to school to pick Jonas up. If she set like a walk thing, which you'd think would, should be very, very close every single day. And usually used to be, and hers was very low. And then she upgraded to Watch OS three, and it went the other way. And she started getting like seemingly extra credit for her calories burned. And she she didn't complain as much then, but she still thought something was flaky. <laughs> and then the other, you know, about a week ago, and she woke up and she went to take her watch off the charger, and <laughs> the whole back just stuck to the magnetic charger. Um, yeah, I think you had mentioned that. So after my wife was like literally like two days after you 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 talked about that. Uh, she was complaining of the same thing about the track not working. So I took the charger and I was like, did it like a bunch of times attaching and, and unattaching and seeing if it would pop off. It hasn't popped off yet, but yeah. no, same situation. She's, she's worn it pretty much daily since she got it at the same time period. Uh, and it has the exact same, same model has the exact same complaints. So yeah, yeah I, I, I'm looking forward to getting a look at the watch innards. Apparently it seems soon. like a common failure. I tweeted a picture of it and, and cracked a very, snarky joke uh because i I happen to follow a couple of other watch things on twitter and uh, i forget who it was what was the company patek had came out with a new watch um and i (laughs) i tweeted the same day i i tweeted a link to this new patek watch and uh you know which is like a twenty five thousand dollar uh, dive watch and i said i wonder what type of glue patek uses to seal the case back <laughs> and i of course i have too, way too of many course followers took it way too took it way too seriously right. i can't tweet something like that without having two or three four people think i'm being serious and then they were like uh patek doesn't glue their watches together john and it was like yes i know um i know it's it, you feel bad kind of making fun of them because they're trying to help but it's the earnestness in the replies that it's it, I get that sometimes as well. Um, so, but the other, the more interesting thing was I got a whole bunch of replies from people who are like, same thing happened to me, same thing happened to me. Um, seems like it's more common with the stainless steel ones, at least anecdotally based on Twitter followers who tweeted me about it. Um, 
it because it wasn't only steel ones, but it was primarily steel ones. And knowing that the aluminum sport models sell in greater quantity, you would think that if it was as likely to happen to any other watch, it would be mostly the sport models. So I think that the problem is more typical with the steel. I don't know if it's because um, they went through a different you know production line and that was the production line where the problem was i don't know if it was that the glue they maybe they used the same glue but that glue uh adhesed better to aluminum than to steel uh could just be honestly if you think about it it could just be apple has you know what 10 years of expertise working with aluminum and stainless steel is relatively new to their yeah, that, that's pro- that's probably that, that's probably the explanation yeah. right there but anyway long story short a whole bunch of people wrote and said it happened to them. They took it to the Apple store and it was, you know, you got to wait. You can't, they don't just give you a replacement on a spot, but they take the watch away and, and give you a replacement, even if it's out of warranty. And Amy's was out of warranty because we, I've ne- I haven't bought Apple care for any Apple products since 1991. So, um, I did, I took it to the Apple store. Uh, I did not seem to be recognized, which I'm always worried about. Cause I want to report on this as I, you know, like what if I'm just a normal Apple customer? What do you, what happens when you take your, Apple Watch in after it falls apart on the charger. Um, I'm pretty sure that the people that the genius guy I dealt with did not, you know, did, didn't recognize me. Uh, and you know, as soon as I described the problem, he was, you know, started typing it into his his iPod. There, the trouble. So he, he'd seen it before too. Well, he didn't. He per, it didn't seem at first, and it, and he looked it up, and he had to type in the serial number, and then uh, when he described the problem, he said, "Oh, good." You know, even though this is out of warranty, I can cover this. You know, and it seemed new to him. And then he was, and then he laughed and said, uh, "The first question I'd already told him how it, you know, how it was discovered that it wasn't dropped or anything, just pulling it off the charger." And he said, "Oh, he said the first question is, did the customer discover the problem removing the watch from the charger?" <laughs> yeah, so it, it's definitely <laughs> he, a known thing. Yeah, it's, it's so in the, known. It's in the system. That, yeah, it's so known that there's a chain through the, you know, how did this happen? That begins with, did it happen pulling the. Uh, the watch off the charger so you know as we record the watch is in that three to five day we'll tell you when it comes back period i'm curious if they're gonna if they replace it if they're going to replace it with a series zero or a series one yeah that's a good question the 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 the, the, the trouble with the app i kind of want it because i'm I'm on this swimming thing now so i kind of want to get the uh the well first off uh Craig Hockenberry is a, apparently a popular guest in this episode, but he's written about that he's been using the original Apple Watch for swimming ever since he got it, and right. he's swimming in the ocean where it's it's probably I would imagine the corrosiveness is is more of a, more of a problem. But the problem is that the workout app does not you can't get the swimming on the on the original Apple Watch even with right. the updated OS like Apple is just not not included. So you have to get a new watch. The problem is I I mean I've I've kind of stopped wearing the Apple Watch in, in day-to-day things. Like for me, the I've trimmed my notifications so much that when I get a notification, I almost always want to you deal with it on the phone anyway. Uh, I'm just super aggressive about not getting hardly any notifications. But and the delay in looking at the time was just uh, that. That was kind of I got, I got fed up with it. So I, I'm back to a regular watch most of the time. But I would like to. I'd still like to track, you know, the the actual exercising. So I want to get a maybe I'm considering getting a new one. The problem is I personally just don't find the aluminum ones 
good looking at all. Like to me, the stainless steel still looks so much better. And actually, the one that looks really great is the is the white one. So, but the problem is, I I can't really justify getting the the new edition twelve hundred fifty dollars. Right. If my if I'm just using it for for workouts, like well, maybe I'll start wearing it day to day. I'm like, well, no, we've already, I, I don't know. So I, I'm I'm stuck in paralysis uh, right right now, but. We'll see. I'll probably I'll probably get one of the sport ones. I I think it would be. Um, I should anyway, just to see what it's like, how how it's improved relative to the current one. Yeah. Anyway, that was my story about the Apple Watch. So I yeah, wonder. So I, I I will. I I look forward. I don't look forward, but I, it sounds like I will be corroborating it soon. Exact same <laughs> symptoms that 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 you had. Um. Do you want to talk about? I don't. I don't want to spend a long time on it, but this this story of. Um, uh, Dash, the d- developer of the Dash app. Anybody who's been reading Daring Fireball over the last week would n- know it. Long story short, um, I, <laughs> do you want to summarize it? It's it's such a weird story. Yeah, I think that. Well, I think that the I, I personally don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it right. in part because uh, it's still kind of unclear. There's a new story that that Renee Ritchie wrote this right. morning that I haven't fully read. That apparently is uh, more details are coming out. Uh, and this is one of those things like it's it, you, there's going to be inherent speculation here. I think the only the only comment I would have like it sounds like this guy made some mistakes and probably you know what's the saying like the the cover up is always worse than the crime right. and like wasn't fully transparent uh, about about his situation. And so it's easy to look at it and put in balance and say, well, Apple gave him a chance and and did this stuff and he did these bad things. And you kind of weigh the situation as one against the other. The only, I guess the only pushback I would have to that is we're dealing on one side is the biggest corporation in the world where this particular developer and app doesn't make any difference to their bottom line. And you have this other guy where like that, this is his life. It's his, it's his job. And that changes sort of the the moral calculus, for lack of, lack of a better term. Like it sounds like this guy definitely screwed up, and he kind of covered his his tracks. and And you could be a very moralistic and legalistic about it and say like, "Sorry, you screwed up." Like Apple's justified here, and that's not wrong. But I think it's it's. It, it's on Apple, and you have the situation with Google, with like YouTube accounts being suspended or AdSense, like just yeah. money disappearing. Like th- this has happened again and again, where the balance of power and the balance of injury is so out of whack that I think it behooves the sort of big players to to have more grace and more understanding. And and it, hopefully that's the way it's going to work out. But I I think that that's just the main point I would make. This isn't like a one-to-one, like who's right and who's wrong. You have to consider like the, what are the consequences of, of these actions. And, you know, hopefully it's going to all work out in the end. And fortunately for this guy, I mean, he's selling a, an app for developers. So him not being in the, in the Mac app store in particular, will he'll probably be okay. Um, but anyhow, that, that that's just my kind of big picture sort of observation about the whole thing. Yeah, it's uh, the developer's name is Bogdan. I hope I didn't pronounce it closely close enough. He's from Romania, uh, Bogdan Popescu, um, and he's still I think is fairly young. Um, and it was confusing at first because more or less the, the story is that there were two developer accounts tied that were related to the same bank account, and same credit card. Uh, and the one account was full of s- mostly cheesy apps, uh, and uh, the other account only had the Dash apps. Dash is a, uh, an API 
browser and snippet browsers and snippets meaning you can enter your own little snippets of text like frequent like if you do tech support or something like that and you have a bunch of frequently used responses you can invoke dash type a couple of letters to get the the saved snippet you want and boom there it is pasted into your email and it's a really great app. I have it. I don't do enough programming anymore that it's really been useful, but I can see that it's super, super useful. Um, I know that uh, you know it, people use it even instead, like Mac developers use it instead of Xcode for document browsing. It's so good. It's you know, and you know, for people who are doing things that are not Xcode, like PHP or Perl or something like that, it it can be way better. Than the document browse, you know, documentation that's typically invoked like through terminal or something like that. Um, it's a really well regarded app. There's an iOS version and stuff like that. And people at first, when this guy's developer account, did, what Apple did at first was yank all of it. They, it was all taken off the store. And this guy said, "Hey, I, they said I did app review fraud. I don't, you know, I didn't do that." Uh, and people really did. And I think rightly so. And I think it was. I think it was the right way for the community to go. We're like, hey, I believe this guy because his apps don't look scammy at all. I use them and love them. It's, these are good apps. And you know, it went from there. And I think it was. You know, I think it was good. I didn't link to it at first, and I'm glad I didn't. I felt like my spidey sense kicked in because I just felt like there was something fishy going on. Like it just didn't seem like the whole story was out. So and I, I didn't link. Um, I will say I feel a little bad that I wrote about this. I know I got I got I got to talk to Apple the day that they they said you know they issued a statement about what happened, um, and I linked to Dalrymple's report about it because I didn't want to post a major article about it myself, um, but I ended up doing so anyway. But um, I felt a little bad posting about it when I did because it seemed like it, we were only getting Apple's side of the story and my instinct was we should wait to hear Popescu's side too but I was getting on an airplane I was uh, away for the weekend and I didn't want to wait four hours or trust that I'd be able to work on the Wi-Fi which is in hindsight I and I feel like it worked out I don't feel like I wrote anything that I had to retract or anything like that but it, uh, in hindsight I felt like I feel like that was kind of a bad decision I feel like I should have I should have been willing to completely miss the story or be way late on it than uh, only only hear one side of it. Even though I think Apple's side was more right than wrong. Yeah. The, well, the other the other big point I would make is, and I saw, and it's hard to know for sure what Apple's thinking was around this, but I certainly saw this on Twitter. Uh, is People were being very skeptical. Oh, someone would share their credit card or they'd share a bank account. Like that is absolutely the right. reality in lots of countries. And I, I think that you know, in, in the states, the idea that you would—and this is for sure—this is Apple's biggest error for sure. Like they, and they even said they were sending the notifications to the fraudulent account, not even though the two accounts were joined. Right. So because they assume that if they have the same credit card, they must be the same developer, but. When I was, uh, and I deal with, deal with this not just because I live internationally, but when I was at Microsoft and, and we were setting up the Windows App Store originally, this was a, one of the biggest problems we had to deal with. And it was very difficult, is that like Apple, the developer accounts needed to have a credit card and there's like a, a nominal cost. Uh, but it turns out, it's really hard to get a credit card in many countries of the world. And even if you do have a credit card, it often doesn't work with a U.S. Based transaction because for fraud or whatever, or they just don't do internet. They only work inside the country, and it was like a multi-month project to get workarounds for this to work. So the point being, like this idea that 
to to assume that because two accounts use the same credit card, they're linked. That's in lots of countries that may not be the case. It's very reasonable that that may not be the case. And I think so. In reaction in general, I think there wasn't enough of an appreciation that that might be the case. Yeah. And again, it, like reading the Rene article, he says that the other person was actually his mom. That's why he was being kind of cagey about it. But th- those particular details, I think. It, I just have wildly different reactions. Some people immediately assume that that sounds ridiculous and fraudulent. From my reaction, that's like that's I can completely believe that's the case. And the other thing with Apple is now that the App Store and this decision making was going up to Phil Schiller, uh, the Phil Schiller did not set up the App Store. That was under Eddie Q. And the reason why I think that's relevant is he didn't. I I, I don't know, but it's I think it's reasonable to presume that. Uh, Phil may not be familiar with the, these sorts of things, like the hassles of credit cards in different countries and bank accounts and why they might be combined. Just not because he's he's dumb or doesn't care, but he didn't have to go through the pain of figuring out all the workarounds to get that set up. Like Eddie Q's team had to figure that out when they set up the iTunes Music Store and they set up the App Store the first time. And if you don't even know about that, then immediately it sounds super, super sketchy. Whereas if you do know about that, and so my initial reaction, and I, I was to be told, believe it. It was it's super believable if you understand the circumstances of different countries that are the infrastructure isn't there. And I still think that I again I think it was more like the cover up was worse than the I, I I think in broad strokes there's probably like his story I think is is I still tend to think it's it's mostly true. I think he absolutely made mistakes. And this is where I get to that sort of my original point. If you weigh it in the balance, did he make mistakes? It, it seems clear he did. But when you consider that, if you take the totality of the situation and understanding different markets and the credit card thing and the bank account thing and him starting out as a young developer, it would be nice to have a little more slack and and mercy for lack of a better word in this situation and and i do hope it turns out in the long run i definitely um suspected you and i are on a slack where we talked about this before it went public and i was early on thought hey i think there's an english as a second language problem here you know because i suspect that popescu's you know speaks i we now i now know romanian is his first language and english as a second language his written english is excellent truly excellent and I could see why some people would notice it, but I see certain telltale signs that say that there's just like a certain stiffness to it that to me reads like English as a second language. And even how, no matter how good it is, it, it, when, it, when and you know this firsthand, you know, living in Taipei, that the, nuance is the hardest thing to get, right? It, it's in a subtle, yep. and this is a situation that required nuance. And I definitely think that there was, uh, I think that there was certain bits of nuance that slipped between the cracks. And I think at, to your point about, you know, credit cards and bank accounts from Romania that work with U.S. credit and bank account and iTunes systems and stuff like that, I think there were some cultural uh, differences that were even harder to match up because of the English as a second language thing. And I, the whole thing to me was, uh, it, no matter what the true story is, I, I, I can't help but think that this was sort of a perfect storm of problems. Um, by which I mean that part of the blow up on Twitter 
against Apple when this when this guy's account was initially yanked was sort of and rightly so or no maybe not rightly so but justifiably so uh of of from the developer community of wow here's a world where your entire livelihood can be pulled by Apple and they don't even show you the evidence against you uh, yep. which is kind of terrifying um and you know, Brent Simmons has written wrote a good piece about that that I agreed with largely. That you know, there's there's a reason why, you know, the the foundation of like you know most modern judicial systems, um, you know, involve the right to be able to face the evidence that you're charged with. You know that the the government can't just come and say we know that you committed this crime, so therefore you're going to prison. It doesn't work like that. Um, well, this isn't a judicial system. This isn't the law of the land. Apple, it's within Apple's rights as a private company to do what they want. Um, uh, I do think, though, in hindsight, as the more of this story has come out, as as much of it has, I think the one thing you can look at and say, well, there's a, you know, Apple surely deals with actual fraud, outright fraud on a daily basis. Uh, I yep. think that their, the App Store anti-fraud team is very busy seven days a week. Uh I think it's something that this is the first time in all the years the App Store has been up that we've something like this has come to light where so you know somebody might have been had their account pulled and maybe shouldn't have. Right, because most of them are probably just they're pure fraudsters, so when they right. disappear and no one notices. It, right. it was the it was the fraud account tied to the legitimate account that I think made this yeah. made this um, unfortunate. And yeah, no, in a. I, to, and that's a very fair point, and it's the same thing with with Google and YouTube and, and any of these other sites that 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 deal with this. I mean, they're they're dealing with scale, and and it's it's hard that uh, from an individual perspective, unless you've actually worked at these at these companies. I've told this story before, where uh, I think it was like like my second day at Microsoft, and I was in like some business re- like a monthly business review sort of meeting, and they're just going down this list. And they're talking about oh X percentage in Brazil and blah, 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 Eastern Europe, blah, blah. and it was mind blowing. Like just the casualness that they were talking about, like massive regions of the world and like the user numbers and engagement and stuff like that. And you get used to it after a while once you're there, but the, the scale that these companies are operating on, they can't. You know, there's there's a limit between doing a sort of one-on-one judicious review and needing to have systematic approaches. And I, I did find it encouraging that you know the phone call I posted that Apple was engaging with them one-on-one. I still it, I am still unclear why it, Apple suddenly went out with a press release and, and did this big thing. I, I would have liked to. But I, I can I can have sympathy for for both sides. I've been fortunate enough to see both sides. And but the, the challenge for both is if you're Apple, because you're dealing with scale. Like I said, like once I was at Microsoft and I got used to the scale stuff, like it just became normal. But that's it's it's not normal. It's a very it's a very sort of narrow way to view the world to just view it at scale and not to forget about the individual sort of level. And you could see that you you could see how that could happen on the management side. And you have this sort of mismatch of the individual perspective versus the, the on mass perspective. And it's a hard problem. It's a hard problem for both sides. And, uh, one of the things I think it's exacerbated by the cultural things and the, and the international things and the language things. One of the things that's most extraordinary about it though, is that we know from, uh, and, and you know, 
right or wrong, but one of the things that Popescu did was rec- record a phone call from Apple Developer Relations. And we know from the guy from Apple who spoke to him that this clearly did percolate up to the level where Phil Schiller was fully aware of it, right? Which is kind of amazing, right. you know, in terms of the scale and in terms of where this got to that the, this, you know, one man, you know, indie developers problems with being somehow tied to a different account or a joint account or however you want to put it and what should happen, whatever it percolated up to the point where Phil Schiller was fully informed on it and, and was making decisions on it, which is really kind of extraordinary. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's a good thing, right? It, it, it kind of speaks to there being a lack of process here, right? I'm not sure if that's the sort of decision that should percolate that, that high, but again, it might've been, I, I, there, I think there was the extraordinary circumstance here is that, the combination of legitimate and illegitimate, yes, right. whereas most fraudsters are just illegitimate, so they right. they get caught and they're deleted, and no one knows and no one cares. Right. It was the it was the combination here, and and Apple tying those two accounts together because of the same credit card, and and not sending the notices to the account as right. a whole, only sending it to the fraudulent account. Uh, right, but anyhow, hopefully, I, I hope it works out. I feel bad for the guy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things you need to point and say, "Oh, you should have been more clear and upfront with exactly what was going on and and revealed everything." But it's one of those things like if you were in the same situation and you know, I guess I take it there, but for the grace of God, go I sort of thing. Right. And and with tremendous gratitude that my business is based on the on the open web and is not a closed ecosystem with no side loading, no way around <laughs> the, the sort of Apple gatekeeper. Um, all right, I think that's enough for a short segment on. Dash. But hopefully, I agree the same way. I hope that somehow this still works out such that Dash can get back into the App Store because it really is a good app. And I really do think ultimately the guy has good intentions and, it, you know, the quality of the work is. Yeah. Is and like a, death, like, a, 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 like a death penalty. I mean, it's not physical death, but like death of like the app and his company. I, I, I mean, maybe I'm just a softy, but it, it, it seems that seems like a bit of a bummer. Yeah. Um, well, the good news is, in worst case scenario, he's still got the Mac that the app that he can the Mac app can run outside the App Store and do his own. Uh, he's already ha- you know you can already get it outside the App Store, um, and he has a system in place so that people who bought it through the App Store can get the non App Store version without having to pay for it again. So, it's not the, the worst thing case. that the other thing that I guess the thing that bums me out about this episode and a lot of stuff with with Apple is is there's a certain segment that is so instinctual in defending Apple, no matter what. And so you had a lot of people, uh, particularly developers, that were very skeptical of Apple and defending this guy, which was great. But then, but meantime, there's a lot of people on Twitter that are regarding, oh, no, for sure he did wrong. It, 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 this sort of just, it, it's, it became tribalistic, I think, yeah. too quickly. And then you kind of had this weird scenario where I think you, and again, we, we talked to some of these guys who were defending him, and they kind of felt out on an island because they're like saying that, you know, Apple did a bad thing, and they're getting, and you're getting these sort of attacks on social media. And so as soon as Apple releases some sort of evidence that means it's right, the instinct for those people who initially defended the developer is to like snap to the other side. It's like, oh, okay, I, I did my best, but no, yeah. he's, he's going wrong. And the truth is, as with the vast majority of things, there's gray in the middle, both sides screwed up uh you know apple particularly in the communications point like that's definitely a screw up and i don't know just black this is just a, we're not getting philosophical but like there's no most matters are gray and this is probably a perfect example of that and that's why it's hard to talk about because it, it, there's there it, it's very much in the in the gray area and again hopefully in the long run it works out for everyone 
I will say, before we move on, I'll say also in the same regard, the other thought that occurred to me is this is why Apple stays, keeps its corporate mouth shut about almost everything. Yeah. As infuriating as that can be and as opaque as it can make the company be, it's why they just don't talk about stuff, even when they want to, even when they feel like they've been falsely accused or they know they've been falsely accused and that, you know, that, you know, somebody says X and it's not true and they don't come out and say, no, that's not true. Here's why they just take it. They just take it because they kind of can't win. It's, you know, that they can let it stand and keep their mouth shut and let some amount of people think that this false thing is true or they can come out and dispute it. Even they could even prove it, but then they look like a bully that you know, literally the biggest and you know the biggest company in in the world, uh, coming out against you know in this case literally a, a one man company. So yeah, they it's sort of a no lose situation and a, a no win situation, and I can see why the lesser you know the 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 better route for them is usually to keep their mouths shut. Totally, totally. All right. Do, you, do that, you think that Apple should allow sideloading of, of, of apps, by the way, on iOS? No, I do not. If I were, if I worked at Apple and I was in charge, or they asked my opinion, should we allow sideloading of apps in iOS? I would say no. In an ideal world uh, where there's no bad actors, yes, that would be the right way to go. But um, I, I, you know, this the example I'm going to show. It say is Dropbox. Um, there's you know, a whole thing I haven't really written or talked much about it, but there was a thing that came out over the summer over somebody and found out that Dropbox, the Dropbox app for, uh, for Mac was like, it would say like, Hey, we need your, uh, admin password just to, you know, finish installation. And then they would take that out, those admin privileges and write themselves into the, the database that controls who has, which apps have accessibility access to your app to your Mac, which is really sensitive because apps that have that accessibility access, you really have to trust them because they can like do things like see all your keystrokes or see what you're clicking on and stuff like that. Um, and and they, not just that, but they stored the password. No, so they didn't store the password. It, they, no, they didn't oh, store how, the how password. I forget the exact details of it. I'll, I'll put a link. I swear to God, I'll put a link. People <laughs> thought they were... St- people were reasonably thinking they stored the password, but they didn't. What they did was grant themselves access to that database so that they could just keep writing to that data that the, oh, okay. the database that over makes over sense. again. Yeah. Um, so they were more or less instead of, they weren't taking your admin password, but they were granting themselves permanent admin privileges to your accessibility preferences, I think is a very fair way of saying it. Um, and, and when you say it that way, it just sounds as terrible as it is. It, well, it's a betrayal of trust. It really is. It's shenanigans, and it shouldn't be happening. Uh, there's no need for it. It's really, as far as what I've heard, is that the whole thing is just to enable some sort of integration with uh, Microsoft Office files. Something about the complexity of Microsoft Office's um, you know, bundled file formats. Uh, which I don't even, you know, for people like me who don't even have Office installed, it's ridiculous that they're doing something that I would consider, you know, almost like malware-like behavior, however good their intentions are. Um, and, they, you know, they do things, they Dropbox, uh, you know, uh, does some things that they monitor all access to the file system. And depending on how powerful your Mac is, it can actually significantly slow down operations like uh, unzipping files and stuff like that because they look... They're snooping at every single action in your file system, whether it's inside the Dropbox folder or not, which is contrary to how it used to work. 
And contrary to me, to how any reasonable person would think Dropbox works, I would think, yes, of course, they're looking at everything that happens inside the Dropbox folder. That's by, you know, I would assume that they need to so that they can keep everything in sync. It seems ridiculous to me that they're looking at anything that happens outside the Dropbox folder because I don't want them to, but they are. Um, you know, I did some timing tests on my, you know, new five or relatively new 5K iMac that has all these extra cores and stuff like that and an SSD drive, and it's hardly noticeable. But on like a, a MacBook Air or something like that, it can, you know, significantly slow down stuff. And that's my example of an app that's not malware. It's doing what they said, but they're taking advantage of, you know, the fact that. Uh, an app that you download on the Mac from dropbox.com can more or less do whatever it can get away with. Um, and however, whatever X, Y, and Z, the good things would be if you could sideload apps on, on iOS. And admittedly, I said, you know, install all sorts of apps from outside the app store on the Mac and I wouldn't have it any other way in the Mac. It's an advantage that iOS, you know, it's, it's, it's a trade-off. There's trade-offs to the Mac style and there's trade-offs to the iOS style, but I feel like Apple has an advantage by having one operating system that takes the one side and one operating system that takes the other. What do you yeah, think I agree. I agree. I mean, I would, as a user, I would prefer to be able to sideload apps. And were I, deve- I a developer, I would like to know that there's that, there's that option uh, to 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 do that, and that the app store isn't the only gatekeeper. But if I put on my sort of you know business hat and think about what concerns Apple, like at, what concerns Apple is, they're operating at this unbelievable scale with with hundreds of millions of, of customers and secure. It's a huge target, and yes, you can lock it down to an extent, but then like phishing becomes a, an option where you get people to to install these apps. And, and people will, people are, I mean, people are not careful about this stuff in a way that probably you and I and most of the listeners of this are. I think, I, I agree with you. It's even though all the problems of having a single gatekeeper and the fact that you have the situation with, with this developer where Apple can have, like literally have a kill switch on his uh, on his account, those are all true, and they that means it's really on Apple to make sure they get that sort of stuff right. But I agree uh, for the from a business perspective, it doesn't make sense to to open it up. So yeah, we're on the same page. All right, I think that the advantage of having both the Mac OS and I, I mean we could probably do a whole show about this, but that the advantage of having Mac OS and iOS. At the same time, and I'm firmly of the belief that macOS is, I know it's just maybe even unpopular among the pundit class. I don't think that it is on its deathbed and it's going to be replaced by iOS any year now. I think macOS is as thriving as it's ever been. Um, I think the way Apple sees it, and I think they're happy with it, is that they've got one operating system that starts from the bottom up. In other words, it's, and this is, iOS, this is what I'm talking about, iOS, and it's for anybody and everybody and it's the simpler one it both you know in terms of the user interface but also in terms of the technical capabilities you know that it does you know only had the only output is a lightning port and you have to plug in a dongle even to get to a usb um you know the multitasking is a lot simpler the apps you know any app that you install has to come from the app store where it's been vetted and it could be killed at any minute um the multitasking system is such that any app has to be ready to be killed at any moment. Uh, and then they've got this other operating system, macOS, that starts from the top down, where it's the it's it's there for the most expert of expert users. You know, if you really are, you know, you want to have a Unix terminal and command line uh, on your system, you've got it. 
Um, I think that really is a very strong place to be, and I think it's worked out very, very well. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I the I find it bizarre that people think they're going to be synced together, and it's 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 really viewing the problem from the wrong perspective because it, it's sort of like a you're looking at it from a complexity. Oh, Apple's going to have to manage multiple operating systems, blah blah blah. Well, that's their job. That's what, like it's their job to manage that complexity and keep it simple for the user. Like what what the proposal that they combine the two quote unquote simplifies it for Apple, but it makes it more complicated for the user because you have a you have a overly complicated operating system on one device and a way to lock down oversimplified on another device. And that's to completely misunderstand, I think, the way that Apple thinks about its products. I mean the the idea is that you should What's presented to the user should be simple, and what's what's the like the Einstein quote about simplicity or whatever? Like everything should be as simple as possible, but not more so. Exactly, exactly, and and that Apple would prioritize its internal efficiency in maintaining two operating systems and put that complexity onto the user. That seems counter to the entire way Apple thinks about simplicity and managing complexity. Right. Uh, the way I've put it in the past, I forget where. I have the Einstein quote memorized. Although, like all great quotes, supposedly that quote is apocryphal and maybe it was never said by Einstein or he said something that was not quite as clever, but people cleaned it up over the years. But anyway, that's the quote that's attributed to him and I'm sticking to it. Uh, my line is something to the effect of, it's the heaviness the, you know, of macOS that allows iOS to be so light that if they got rid of the Mac, they'd have to make iOS so much more complex to pick up the things that the Mac does that iOS can't, that it would wreck iOS. And all of the things they've done over the years, and I think it's the same thing is true on Windows too. All of the ways that over the years, Apple and Microsoft have tried to make simple modes for Mac or Windows, they fail. They they fall short. There used to be like the simple finder on on Mac OS, which was like a mode you could put the Mac in where the finder only showed you instead of showing you like the whole file system, it just showed you like a panel full of your apps. Um, it's well, there, there's still like that launch window thing, like, it, or launcher or whatever. Yes, yeah, the same idea. It's yeah, and I think that that launcher for Mac OS, what's it called? Uh, I never the thing I never launched Launchpad. I never I never use it. They could just erase it. They could just drop it from Sierra, and I would never even notice because it's it's irrelevant. Uh, and I think any any attempt like that to make Mac OS too much iOSy is a failure. And I think any anything they ever did, although I don't think there's ever been something like that, but anything they did that made iOS more, too much like Mac OS would wreck the good parts of of iOS. Well, you could argue this was, I mean, to go back to the watch, this is the mistake they made in, in watch version one was they, they should have developed it where in this case, the heaviness was on iOS on right. the phone and the watch should have been light, like the iPod, right? The iPod was, it was right. the perfect example of this. What made it so great was all the complexity of managing your music was all offloaded on the computer and all the iPod did was play your music and, yeah. and it made it so much more powerful. And I think the mistake that was in version one of the watch was with that launcher and that honeycomb of apps and all that sort of thing. Like it was, it was trying to take, pack an iPhone into it and make it self-sufficient. And in the long run, I, I I still think there's a future where the watch is the center. Like once it gets cellular capability, it's much more powerful, and and there the watch becomes heavy, and like your AirPods become light or or something along those lines. But we're not there yet, and I think that's if you were to 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 encapsulate 
where version one of the watch went wrong. I think the, it's somewhere in there. I know that there are people. This is the worst. You really screwed me by jumping in before I did the sponsor read. But um, it's a good topic. I know that there are people listening to us who are frustrated, and they're they're. I I, I feel your frustration. It's people who do want side loading, and they want that because they can tell how for them it would make iOS even better. And I don't deny that at all. For me, iOS would be better if I could sideload apps like I can on a map, meaning that I could just get a you know version of application X straight from the developer, not through the app store and, and put it on my phone. And maybe it would mean I'd have a version of um, uh, Amazon video for my Apple TV because I could sideload it and then you know right. it would get around you know that to me it's one of the worst things about Apple TV is I don't have Amazon I have an Amazon Prime account I think Amazon has some of the best original content I mean it's maybe not they're not quite up there with Netflix and HBO but they're second tier um and it's just such a pain in the ass to have to load it on my phone and airplay it over to the Apple TV rather than just get it on Apple TV but I totally understand Amazon's point of view that they don't want to give up the 30% or have a version that you can't buy stuff from. I don't know what, you know, but side loading would obviously get around that. And I can see how that would make it better. But the thing I want to say, you know, the thing I want to express to the people who are frustrated by that is it's not about us. The Mac is there for people like us. And, you know, we've got a system like that, but you can't deny that the fact that you can screw up a Mac by installing the wrong thing has led to an awful lot of people who've screwed up their Mac by installing the wrong thing. I can't emphasize enough what an amazing weight off the shoulders it is to non-technical users to have a computer like the iPhone or the iPad that they can't screw up. It's, and it's it, a big benefit. It's a big benefit to developers too, because people download yeah. a million more apps, or way more than a million, like exponentially more apps on the phone because they're not scared of apps. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to remember now, but you go back ten years and people were scared to install stuff on their computers. Oh, absolutely. And, and that would be. And once. And the problem is. You say, "Oh, only technical users do it." Well, no, you like you get the things like uh, what's what, like the accessibility thing in in China, right? We talk about the home button where people put. You get these people do weird stuff with their phones because it becomes a thing to do, and there's like tutorials and in, in videos about it. Like people, lots of people that shouldn't would enable siloing, and then what happens? You get an email say, "Oh, you're," or you get some someone puts up a notification, uh, uh, you know, or they slip something into the app store. They put a legitimate app. They put a notification say, "Oh, you need to update something." You click a button, and it goes to <clears throat> sorry, a, a illegitimate website, and downloads it, siloes an app because you enabled it for some reason or other, and now you have ma- a malware type app on your computer or on your phone, and the like. This stuff will happen. It it, it absolutely will happen, and the fact that. Right now, and you see this on jailbroken phones, right? When you see a report about malware on the phone, it's almost always happening to jailbroken phones. And to, in that case, you kind of brought it on yourself. It's super clear you're doing something you shouldn't do when, when you're jailbreaking it. If it was Apple enabled and Apple endorsed, even if not by default, just the number of people that would do that and expose themselves would be huge. And it would, It'd be a support nightmare for Apple, and it would be bad for developers because people would start getting scared of apps again, and, and that would be a terrible place to be. What was the name of Amazon? There's a company that Amazon owns that like ranks websites by traffic. Is that is it called Alexa? Even though that now that's the name of like their Siri type thing. 
No. Um, what was the name of that? And it used to get its measurements through like the Amazon toolbar or something like that. What was the name? You remember? And it doesn't seem like anybody really. Oh talks yeah, about but it. maybe it was. Maybe it was Alexa. I think it was called Alexa, but it was. And they do like a rankings of like the top thousand websites and stuff like that. And one yeah, time, Alexa I'll, Internet. Yeah, right. I, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that's 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 funny. One time, a long time ago, I was I was at a, a conference and I got in. I was got into a poker game late at night with a bunch of people and. Uh, and one of the guys worked at Alexa or something like that. And this was a while ago, maybe even like 10 years ago. And it was when Alexa mattered more. And Daring Fireball was, at the time, rated terribly in Alexa. I mean, like, way... Their estimates of my web traffic were way less than I knew it to be just because I could look at my logs. And I asked him about it. And it didn't really matter too much to me because I wasn't really interested in the type of advertising that was, like... At the time, there were, you know, if you wanted, like, typical advert web advertising, it, your Alexa ranking mattered. In terms of like the rates you'd get, um, and I did wasn't didn't want to pursue that. And we could again, we could do a whole show about my thoughts on web advertising. But at least in terms of okay. like, wow, if I need to, at least I could. It was like, wow, that door isn't even open to me because I'm way undercounted. And he said, oh yeah, of course you're way undercounted, of course, because you know all the measurements for Alexa come from people who've installed the Amazon toolbar, and almost everybody who installs the Amazon toolbar did it by accident or doesn't know how it got there. And your people who read Daring Fireball are smart enough not to install it and most of them are on max where it doesn't even run anyway <laughs> it was like oh oh no so matter of fact about it yeah right but that's the exact same i think about those web toolbars a lot you know the people used to get those and they you know he even said like we know that most people get it and don't even know how they got it like and there's never that's never going to happen on ios yeah Anyway, I'm going to take a break and thank our next sponsor. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> it is our friends at Harry's. Harry's makes world-class shaving products. It's just a great company. Big razor companies, the big guys, Gillette and those jerks, uh, they have the annoying habit. When they put out new models, they raise the, their already high prices. So if you want to get their best product, you have to pay more than you were paying for their previous product. Unlike those guys, Harry's doesn't believe in upcharging. That's why they, when they make their razors even better, they keep their prices exactly the same. Harry's five-blade razors now include, this is brand new, they have a softer flex hinge for a more comfortable glide. They have a new trimmer blade, like a little mini blade for hard-to-reach places, which I think means for most men, at least, that little area right underneath your nose, uh, which is kind of hard to get with the full-width blade, to, you know, at least it is for me. Um so they've got that now. They've got a new lubricating strip that's even better than before. And their handles now uh, have a texture for a better feel when it's wet. Uh, I have one of the new handles. I, my old handle, I've had my original handle from Harry's since they first started sponsoring this show. And if you're a longtime listener of the show, it's years ago. I don't know how many years ago, but years ago, they first started sponsoring. They sent me a pack. I looked at it the other day. It looks, it's in mint condition. It is literally, looks like I could just say that it just got here like last week. That's how, how built to last their stuff is. But I have to say the textured handle is so much better because it really does, it, it's less slippery and it you know, really feels like it, it makes me think, even though I've been a big fan of their stuff for years, it makes me wonder why the original one didn't have this texture. Well, they make it better. Uh, they've made it better. Same price as it used to be. Still just two bucks per blade compared to $4 or more that you'll pay at the drugstore for top blades from other companies. They own their own factory in Germany where they make the blades. They, they own it right from raw steel to the blade. 
that ships to your house. So they can produce high-quality razors themselves and sell them online for half the price because they don't have any middlemen. They make blades. They package them up in really cool packaging, excellent packaging, and ship them right to you. So there's no middleman. You say, how can they charge half what other companies do? Because other companies make them and sell them to a distributor, and then the distributor sells them to uh, you know, Walgreens or CVS or Walmart, wherever the hell you're buying them from. And every step along the way, it gets marked up. Well, Harry's just makes this, these great products, and they sell them direct to you. Uh, they're so confident in the quality of their blades that they will send you their popular free trial set, which comes with a razor, five-blade cartridge, and shaving gel. It's free when you sign up for a shave plan. You just pay for the shipping. Um, uh, there's also a special offer for fans of this show. Get a bottle of Harry's post-shave balm added to your order for free when you visit harrys.com and use the code TALKSHOW, just TALKSHOW, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W, at checkout. Uh, so go to harrys.com right now and use TALKSHOW, at checkout and claim your free trial set and your post-shave balm. Harry's.com code talk show. Great sponsor. Uh, what else have we got on the agenda for today? Oh, I, hilariously, I cannot find the, the browser tab that has it. So I just had to go back I've to got our, it right our message chat and, and opened it. So I now have it open twice on my computer. And I wonder why I end up with under tabs. Uh, what about Twitter getting acquired? What are your thoughts on that? It hasn't happened yet. Uh, <laughs> oh, poor Twitter. It started it, sounding, it's, there's so much smoke. It's one of those where there's smoke, there's fire type things. And Yeah, but I think that's Twitter-generated smoke because they wanted. <laughs> I do think the, Twitter wants to be sold. Yeah, well, the problem, the Twitter's stuck. In, and the reason they're stuck is that the company is overvalued for what it is right now. And it has been for a long time. The problem is that the number one thing I suspect that is propping up the stock price is the presumption that someone's going to buy it. But it's keeping the price high enough that no one wants to buy it. So it, like the, the, the price needs to go down for it to be a viable acquisition. Uh, but it won't go down because people are counting on it not going down or on getting a good price for the stock. So, so it's really kind of stuck in this sort of catch twenty two situation. There was a, um, you know, the, the, everyone always thinks about the strategic acquirers. Like, you know, Google makes a lot of sense. I've written about this. Uh, I've written about this a fair bit. I wrote a post a while ago. We can uh, it is in the daily update. But walking through like the Twitter sell scenarios and who who should buy them, the problems with it. Google is obviously the one that's always made the most sense in part because they. <laughs> they suck at social. They, they that sort of having a feed, uh, and Twitter needs to go to somebody who can. Uh, where if you just go to to some random company, you have all Twitter's problems are going with you. Whereas Google already has advertising scale, for example, and they already have automated selling, which is something that Twitter really fell on its face on. Like they're still selling the vast majority of their money is still made by like selling ads to big companies or big ad agencies, as opposed to like the mom and pop signing up to Facebook or to Google, which scales so much better and, and makes, it makes a lot of money for them. Twitter never really got that working. So going to somewhere like Google that already has that infrastructure in place makes sense. The problem is Google is Twitter signed this deal with Google a, a year and a half ago to one, give Google all their data and fire, two the quote unquote fire hose. Right. And two, to incorporate with DoubleClick so they'd be part of the system, which means Google basically got 
it, it, outside of like owning it and what they could do with it, they got everything they need from Twitter. They got the data and they got the platform to sell ads against. And why, so why buy it when they got everything they already need? Why buy the cow when you're getting the milk for free? Right, exactly, exactly. So there, there was a there was a good post by um, uh, I think it's John Bronte. Bronte Capital is is the site. He's this guy in Australia that's famous for doing these deep dive investigations of companies, and he can like drive their stock down like like no day tomorrow. But he did a um, uh, he he wrote a, I thought was a, a a good post, and I. I I haven't written about his post specifically, but basically his point is, and I think it's a fair point. We always in tech, we always think about the strategic value of Twitter, and that's why Google should buy it, for example, or like Salesforce has been a big rumor, and they're going to get data and and all that sort of thing. But his point was that like Twitter makes a fair bit of revenue. The problem is their costs are just enormous, and particularly once you include stock-based compensation. They're losing like $500 million a year, which is just a a massive amount of money. It's a pretty stable amount of money, and they've been increasing over the last several years where the revenue's gone up. They've increased their employee base hugely, increased their costs hugely, and and his point kind of is this business is what it is. If you basically go in there and clean house and just keep the business running as it is, it could actually be a profitable company that throws off a fair amount of cash. So he thinks that it needs, the the best solution for them is like a leveraged buyout and someone goes in, just cleans house, gets rid of a bunch of staff, like cleans up the company, makes it profitable and then, and then sells it. And then, and then it'd be much more palatable for Salesforce to buy or for Google to buy. The problem, of course, is Twitter very well may die along the way. It's easy for me to say, and I really hate to be callous about it. I really do because you know a job is an important thing. But I, I never it, the headcount at, at Twitter makes no sense to me at all. It yep. it it's I, I don't understand, and I'm a, a long. I mean, a very early user number. You know, I think I signed up in late two thousand six. Uh, long time user. I have a lot of followers. Uh, 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 you know, I, I think I get Twitter. I, I know that, I, you know, different people use Twitter in different ways, but, um, I, I love Twitter. I really do. I use it every day. It is, it's really turned into the primary way that I interact with readers at Daring Fireball, um, more, far more so than email. And it's, you know, it's funny. I think, one thing I never get anymore, ever. I, I can't remember the last time, honestly, it might even be years since somebody has complained about the fact that Daring Fireball doesn't have comments on articles. And part of it is I think that it, you know, it's I, it's become clear to more and more people that I was right all along that comments on articles are not a good idea. Um, but I think the bigger, one of the bigger reasons is that it, more and more people realize that, that Twitter conversations with at Gruber, uh, are just as good, you know, it's, or, or at least better, I think actually, you know, that there's an interaction with me and with other readers, you know, who, you know, who follow me. Um, it's a fantastic thing. I don't understand why there's so many people who work at Twitter. It's, it's already does what it does. I don't understand what, what is going on there. And it's, yeah, it the, has- the numbers are, the numbers are, Oh, sorry. I, I think we already talked about this last time, uh, but Dustin Curtis posted, the revenue per employee for 2015. Yes. And yeah, yeah. Yahoo was at the bottom, 419,000 per employee. Twitter was 462,000 per employee. So we're, Yahoo level, Microsoft, 789,000. Google, 1.1 million per employee. Facebook, 1.4 million. And Apple, 2 million per employee. Right. And then you get to profit. And at least Yahoo was making a profit right. per employee, at least back then. Twitter was losing $130,000 per employee. 
Right. I, I mean, Facebook's making two hundred ninety thousand. Apple's making four hundred sixty thousand. I mean, it's yeah. It's it. There's this weird attitude about Twitter, and you see this all the time. Like, oh, Twitter has so much potential. Like, oh, Twitter is Twitter is a ten year old company. Right, like at some point you need to. It's almost like treating them disrespectfully, like they're like this little, like this <laughs> incapable sort of being. Like we should expect more from a ten-year-old company. And, and and Twitter is been. I've written to tons of it. We've we've talked about it. Like Twitter has been grossly mismanaged for many years. And yeah, I, I I agree with 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 the Wall Street guy. Like I I think somebody needs to go in. Clean house. Yes, I get that. There's a talent. You, you're going to lose a lot of talent, lose a lot of value employees. But at, at at some point, the service does what it does. People <laughs> like you and I love it. Like it needs a total reset. It just needs to, a total reset. And I hope it survives I, the process. But continuing on this path is is. I don't know what, what is going on with the, the headcount of Instagram now that they're a fully absorbed part of Facebook. But before Facebook bought them, Instagram like thirty was, people, right? It was like twelve people until it got to the point where they needed, and you know, I think they might have had more ops people, you know, than than product people, just because it, it it was so popular. But it was you could reasonably put them on a bus and drive them all to the airport together for like a you know offsite. I mean, it was a, the right. whole company would fit in a bus, uh, and was doing something of similar scale and nature and complexity as Twitter. Uh, I'm not saying Twitter should be 30 people at this point, but it should be a lot closer to 30 than where they are now. And and I yeah. think part of it is, and Instagram is is to me the comparison, not Facebook. Um, it, it's I'm not saying that Twitter should say that they're done and say okay, we've done it, you know. But they're they're they've been closer to done than not done for a while. Like the whole point of Twitter, much like Instagram, is that it's conceptually very simple. That's that's the appeal and is actually part of the point of it, that it's you pick who you want to follow, you'll see what the people who you've chosen to follow post, and then you can post, and the people who've chosen to follow you will see what you've posted. And that, that basic, that simplicity, it sounds so simple, you think, well, that doesn't even count, but it's like, no, nobody had ever actually thought of that before. There's a genius in, in that. But they really, it's not the sort of thing where they need massive ongoing... Uh, development. Yeah, it's it's almost like a uh, it's like Twitter is a perfectly like the the strategy for Twitter has always been to they have a cost problem, but they've always their goal has always been to grow out of that cost problem. If that makes sense, like they're going to get big enough and get scale where the cost makes sense, and that that is a it's it's a reasonable way of thinking. That's the way companies operate, but I, the. The problem is there, it's just not that big of a business. Like Twitter, I mean, Twitter makes a few billion dollars a year in revenue. Like that should be enough to have a viable business given what it is. And I think part of this gets into all the problems that Twitter had in management and all the problems they had in, in, in their board and in the the fighting between Evan Jack is they, they, and they, the classes, they probably took on too much venture money in the long run. They didn't yes. build a business more quickly enough. And they got to a state where they had this sort of bloated apparatus that the easiest and most obvious way was to well if we can grow revenue big enough we'll outgrow our bloat it needs a reset like the the service is what it is obviously the the abuse problems are real and need to be addressed but i think even there you have all these bad incentives going on like killing spam hurts the 
the active user account, right? Banning people hurts the active user. Like, and you have there's all these bad incentives in place for Twitter as a public company as they are now. And yeah, I, I I've really come around, I think, to this sort of like. I get the talent issue. I get that people are going to flee Twitter if, if an Wall Street guy comes in and cleans house. But at, I think we're to the point where, it, like, yes, the surgery might kill the patient, but without the surgery, the patient is is, is not going anywhere. I mean, you can't lose $500 million a year forever. <laughs> <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> they had a big drop-off. Who was it? It was just recent where the stock got run up on the rumors that they might get acquired, and then... Uh, like a yeah, week. This, this, was it Salesforce? Yeah, then, yeah, Salesforce is the lead one, but it, it really sounds like, particularly where the leaks came out, they were kind of known Twitter channels. <laughs> so it sounds like Salesforce expressed interest and then Twitter tried to drum up other interests. And then everyone's like, nope, not interested. And then the stock crashed back down. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I love Twitter. I hope it works out. But I do think that. I guess I've come around on Google. I mean, my, my antipathy towards Google is just a general. I I I, in general, I just don't like Google, <laughs> and I don't trust them with with data. And I don't want I don't want my Twitter account tied to a Google ID. And I don't you know I don't know what Google would want to do in that regard if they were the ones to buy them. But on the other hand, if the right people at Google were in charge of it and they just saw it as wow, we've you know we've got this incredible resource of instant news of what everybody around the world is talking about it you know i could see them handling it well and google you know has shown it you know a history of like when they first monetized search results of you know not messing with what made it good in the first place yeah the only other the other one is interesting and here's another example where 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 google uh kind of kind of screw themselves but is a company like bloomberg where so of course Bloomberg has a deal with Twitter where Twitter gives them all their data mm-hmm. <laughs> for a price that's way too low for what it's worth. But it, if there was a cleaning of house and Twitter survived it, it like the there's really valuable stuff in Twitter. I I, I use Twitter a fair bit for uh, like if you want to find interesting, like say I'm writing about a topic and I really want to understand more about it. I want to get different points of view. Like, yes, I use Nuzzle, like, personally, and that services stuff, but if it's a more obscure sort of thing, like, Twitter search is actually one of the best ways to uncover interesting off-the-beat sort of posts or articles about about any particular topic. Like, because just the, just the, the nature of the data is different than something like, like Google, and it, there's a lot of value there. I... I it's not clear it's value that's best monetized by advertising. And this can go back to the very, you know, beginning back, you know, when the decisions were made about Twitter and how it should monetize. If Twitter came along later, it would be interesting if, you know, and it didn't have obviously the executive upheaval, but in a world where it's clear that Google and Facebook are going to really dominate advertising online and had there been more creativity with Twitter, I mean, it, it would well, we've said this a million times, but like they own, like imagine if someone owned the protocol behind email, right? Like how <laughs> right. valuable could that be? Right. And like, that's what Twitter, Twitter had, maybe still has, but had the potential to own basically a messaging protocol for the internet. And 
in part because of monetization concerns, in part because just general ineptitude. Like, I still can't believe that Twitter banned links and direct messages for two years. But they could have owned, like, a messaging protocol for the internet. But they didn't align, they didn't choose a business model that that enabled that. They they chose advertising. They closed on all the third-party stuff. And it's a shame. It's, it's, it's one of the biggest, like, what could have been. I still think Twitter could have been a massive company, but there would have had to have been very different choices made, you know, five, six years ago. Yeah. Uh, let me take one last break here and thank our third and final sponsor. It's a brand new sponsor. I'm very excited about this company. They're called Away. Away makes first class luggage at coach prices. They use high quality materials, just like other brands, but offer much lower prices by, and this is a recurring theme with podcast sponsors, cutting out the middlemen and selling directly to you. So they've got three sizes. One of my favorite things with Away is that's just what they do. They've got, they're all the same quality and they've got three sizes. The carry-on, guess what? Fits in carry-on overhead bin. The medium and the large. Uh, if you ever go, I, I, I actually am in the market for a carry-on bag. I've been using the same one for like 15 years and it literally is like ripped apart and stuff that I put in the one in the front pocket actually usually falls <laughs> into the, the main compartment. You should, probably, you should probably get a new one. Well, it doesn't fall out of the suitcase. It falls from the little front zipper pack thing <laughs> into the main compartment. Um, but you go to like uh, uh, these other brands and, and they've got like, uh, and you know, they call it like the executive and the junior executive and the overnight executive and the cheating on his wife executive and it's all like 21 <laughs> inches drinking coffee and i just spit it out it's like the, it's like the difference between them is like is it 22 inches or 21 and a half inches or 21 and three quarters inches high or 14 or 15 inches wide who needs it they've got three sizes the overhead one fits in at, at least here in the u.s fits in all of the overhead bins of all the airlines i've ever flown on uh which is all i need uh, the suitcases are made with premium German polycarbonate, uh, unrivaled in strength and impact resistance, and very lightweight. It actually looks to me like they're three or four pounds lighter than a lot of other premium brands. The interior features a patent-pending compression system useful for overpackers. That's me, because uh, I like to just carry a carry-on instead of checking a bag. Uh, four 360-degree spinner wheels guarantee a smooth ride. I will never buy a suitcase again that doesn't have four four wheels. Never. Because sometimes it really is so much more convenient to just push them along rather than pull them on two wheels. They have a TSA-approved combination lock built into the top of the bag. Uh, removable, washable laundry bag. Keeps your dirty clothes separate from the clean. They just give it to you. It's right there in the bag. Uh, and now here's the part where – here's why. now why are they sponsoring the talk show? Here's a, This is just a brilliant feature. I love this. It comes with a built-in 10,000 milliamp – uh, battery charger and you can take it out so you could charge it you could take it out of the suitcase and charge it somewhere else you don't have to have the suitcase at your desk to charge it or wherever you're going to charge it but then you charge this thing up you put it in a suitcase and then you've got usb ports right on top of the suitcase so while you're sitting there at like the waiting for your flight to board you you got a massive portable battery to charge uh anything that needs to be charged right there on top of the suitcase what a great idea um Lifetime warranty, if anything, and it's got a couple of ports, so you could have, you know, like one for you, one for your significant other, or your kid, or something like that, or charge your iPhone and your iPad at the same time. What a great idea! 
Uh, I never go to the airport without a portable battery charger. Wouldn't it be great not to have it in my pocket? Have it right built into the suitcase. Brilliant. It's a suitcase for today's age. Um, lifetime warranty. If anything breaks, they'll fix it or replace it for life. 100-day free trial. Live with it. Vibe with it. Uh, travel with it. Instagram it. And if at any point you decide it's not for you, you can return it for a full refund. No questions asked. 100 days. So they get free shipping on any away order within the continental United States. Sorry for everybody outside the continental United States. Um, you can still buy one. Uh, and like I said, the carry-on size is compliant with all the major airlines. Um, really, I, I, this sounds like a great product. I don't have one right now. I'm going to buy one because I need a new suitcase, and it's the prices are – the <laughs> significantly less than the ones I have, have been looking at from other brands. Uh, really, really great stuff. Uh, where do you go to find out more? You go to awaytravel.com slash talk show. That's the URL, awaytravel.com slash talk show, and uh, they'll know you came from the show. Go check them out if you're in need for a suitcase. Here's the prices. The carry-on's $220.5, the medium is $275, and the large is $295. Uh, so all three of them are under 300 bucks. This carry-on I was looking at the other day from another company was like $700. So this is a lot less. Uh, good colors, everything, anything you can say about it. So anyway, go check them out, awaytravel.com slash talk show. Uh, it, just to a quick follow up, the it, it is Bronte Capital, but the author is John Hempton. It's not. not how do you spell? John how do you spell Bronte? How do you spell B R O N T E Capital? And it's actually a blogspot site. dot blogspot. dot com. So B R O N T E. Yeah, B R O N T E Capital C A P I T A L. dot blogspot. dot com. All right, and what's the author's name? Uh, John Hempton. Hempton. All right, there we go. Yep. Uh, what else is on our agenda? We're never going to get to all of this, are we? I know, but it was just too bad because they're both interesting. So there's Siri, uh, Moss, Walt Mossberg wrote a column, and then uh, Augmented Review, in, which actually, I, I'm, we might I, I would like to talk about that. We can mow we'll through see. all this. We can do it. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the Google Pixel phones. We, I think we can do this one pretty quickly. I ordered one. I, did, I don't know if you did. Yeah, I did. Uh, I haven't bought an Android phone, I think, in two years. I think it was two years ago when I bought this Moto X, and I try to stay on top of it. I regretted it the moment I got it. This Moto X is a piece of crap, uh, and I should have gotten a Nexus, and I regretted it. Yeah, and I, swore, I, the, yeah I, got the, I got the 6P last year. I swore that I would never buy another Android phone that wasn't a Nexus, and now they've just abandoned the Nexus name and you know, taken even more control over the design and called them Pixels. It's, uh, to me, it's the only way to try an Android phone. I mean, look, I mean, you buy a Samsung, the thing's going to set you on fire. <laughs> I have no interest in a Samsung, not because I don't think they're, I, you know, I don't want to kick dirt on them while they're on fire, but. Uh, <laughs> but fire, dirt puts out fires. I know for a fact from two minutes of dicking around with one in a cell phone store that I have no interest in buying one because of the shitty software that they put on top of Android. I can tell I want to use the Android that comes from Google. You don't get it from Samsung. You can't get it from them. So I have no interest in it. I have no idea why anybody who cares about this stuff would ever buy a Samsung phone. So anyway, I bought a Pixel. I bought the 5-inch model in black. And I was so torn over uh, whether to get the 32-gigabyte one or the oh, same here. One twenty-eight. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, it cost me three days, and I got further behind in the shipping queue because I couldn't decide which one to buy. Because I thought 
with the iPhone, I've always bought the largest capacity one there is. Even this year, I got the 256, even though my, my old phone was only at like, I don't know, like 100 or so or 90 some. I had plenty of space. I needed more than 64, but I was well under 128. And I probably would be for another year. But I just don't want to even worry about it. If I want to shoot 4K video, I'll shoot 4K video and I don't have to, to clear it off. Um, with the Pixel, I really am 99% sure it's not going to become my daily phone. Uh, but just in case it does. Well, or just in case. I, the thought that occurs to me is what if I'm testing it and like some something really fascinating or newsworthy happens and I want to start shooting 4K video, you know. Uh, I don't want to, you know, have it fill up. So I got one too. I got the same model. That or Did you end up getting 128? No, I ended up. And, and I, you know, money just squirts through my, my hands, my fingers like water. But I ended up saving $100 this one time and I bought the 32 gigabyte version. I, I, I did get the 128. Uh, it, it, there, to me, this product is, is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> and it's because you. it's. Because <laughs> I got the one twenty eight. Yeah, I even went to I the next day. I even went to change my order, and it was too late. It's like in the processing queue, so I would have had to cancel it and go to the end of the queue. So I thought, all right, I'll stick with it. <laughs> all right, why are you fascinated by it? So the most interesting thing is, I mean, to go back. I have, like I mentioned, I have the, uh, I believe it's the six P, the the Huawei one from last year. Very nice phone. Uh, and I still find Android, Android. F- frustrating like for me the like scrolling is like my the white whale for me in android like i just it it just it's like nails on the on the chalkboard i can't drives me up the wall uh but what's interesting is my 6p is not getting the google assistant so you go back to the way they opened up that presentation they didn't start out with the hardware they started out by talking about like the history of tech he's like there was the pc era and then there was the internet era and then there was the mobile era and now we're in the ai era Uh, which i don't think i don't think i don't quite agree with that i talked about that on on exponent um this, this last week but the point is it's all about the Google Assistant. And then from there, they went to the, the Pixel phone. So that was the framing for introducing the phone. They weren't selling a phone. They were selling access to the Google Assistant. And what's so interesting is the Google Assistant is not a part of Android. It, it does not, it's not going to be on the Nexus phones. It's not on phones from third parties that, oh, they can use their own assistant they want. And, and Samsung bought Viv, bought another assistant. And I've heard rumors that it might be available. I'm not sure if I suspect not. And if it is, I'll, I will have thoughts about that. Because what's interesting is if if that framing is right, that they're moving to a new world of this assistant world, then that sounds like really good news for Google, right? Because the sort of this assistant stuff is right in their wheelhouse. So we can get into the quality of the assistant. And I think yeah. I'm not sure LO is a good representation of how good it may or may not be, but at least like sort of theoretically. It's easy to imagine that Google's assistant is going to be more capable than than the competition because that that's what they do. Right, I believe the prob the problem for Google is assist. This world is a great fit for them technologically, and it's a horrible fit for them from a business model perspective because the way Google makes money is they basically make their advertisers compete against each other. 
and they compete to get in front of customers, and then the customer chooses the winner. They click on an ad, they select an ad and click on it, and that's the one that gets that 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 it, that, that pays money. It's a, it's a great insight. So let me let me let me see if you agree with this. The 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 main product that Google for since its inception has served is a list of search results. Right. You, you know, and this is, goes across all their products, you know, I mean, whatever they make from Gmail, I don't think it, it's a drop in a bucket, I think, compared to search results. And the product is you type in a little thing in this little box and hit return and Google about, you know, one tenth to two tenths of a second later gives you a list of results. And originally it was all just search results and their competitors were doing things like putting punch the monkey ads atop the page. Uh, all of this obnoxious stuff, they were making no money on it. And Google said, we're never going to show these banner ads. And they never did. They never went back on that. And what they did is they found a way to say, what we're going to do is, it, it, it's actually, I would say it's almost like a form of early form of native advertising. And I know you've talked about it. Absolutely. That, right? Yep. It's, we're just going to use one of the slots in the list. We're just going to make slot one uh, a paid result. And we're going to try to make sure that even though it's a paid result, that it's still somewhat relevant to the query because that'll work for everybody. It'll work for you, the person looking for a thing. It'll work for the, the advertiser uh, because they're only going to have the ad in front of people who are actually sort of looking for this. And... <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just ruined your train of thought. And it'll work for us because this might actually be sustainable. Uh, it's Sorry. a win-win-win no, advertising. No, notes in the browser just crashed on me. I sent you a screenshot, and you totally went off the rails. I apologize for that. It says, notes has stopped responding. An error has prevented this application from working properly. That's because it's not an application. It's a web page. Anyway, it's a, it's a list. But there is no... You know, and in the same way, you know, and you've often been very complimentary about uh, the Daring Fireball sponsorship model that, you know, it is a f early form of native advertising where I serve up a bunch of short articles every week and I sell one of them to a sponsor who I hope is, you know, uh, of interest to my audience. And it just slips right in to the RSS feed just like all the other ones. And it's clearly labeled. Uh, as sponsored, but it's not like a, some extraneous thing, like an image on top of the thing. Uh, right. There is no inter there's no room for that in an interaction with a voice assistant. You know what I mean? Like if I say uh, to my voice assistant, "Hey Dingus, uh, book me on a flight to San Francisco on October 26th," uh, the Dingus can't come back to me and say, "Hey, would you, you know? Would you like to?" Uh, you know, yeah, no one wants to make selections. Like, and, and this is the, this is exactly it. The, like, an assistant works if it gives you answers, whereas Google's business model is predicated on giving you options. And the, and so, in a world where you give answers, not options, their business model falls apart. And people are like, "Oh, well, people could there could be sponsored results." And one, most of the time, that sounds terrible. But two, yes, there are some scenarios where, like, Google could maybe charge an affiliate fee or something, right? Like, you use right. OpenTable to book. They say, "Book me a table at X restaurant," and Google uses OpenTable, and OpenTable pays Google an affiliate fee. That that like, <laughs> right? No, it's, 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 it's well, just you, you know, listening to it, it sounds ridiculous. Ridiculous. One, there's very few areas that will work. But two, 
affiliate fees are not very high relative to what companies pay for Google ads. Because to your flight example, like what's the goal of Kayak and uh, and Booking.com or, or Expedia or all these sort of things? They're not only looking to complete a purchase, which they would pay an affiliate fee for if that was an option. They're also looking to acquire a customer for the long run. And so they're they're calculating the value of that ad on a lifetime value sort of calculation, which means their willingness to pay for an ad is much higher than it would be for a pure affiliate model. So the net of it is, is that in an assistant world, Google's general business model doesn't work. There might be limited ways they could make money, but one, it's not very many, and two, the amount they can charge for them is just not that that much right imagine if you had a, a real personal assistant if you hired a person and you said to your <laughs> person you said you you said hey sam uh get me a reservation at the house of prime rib wednesday at 10 and then sam said to you why don't i book you at morton's instead and by the way uh i uh i'm, I'm being paid <laughs> I'm by morton's steakhouse to <laughs> suggest that you eat there Right, you'd say you'd fire him. You'd be like, "Are you kidding me? What are you doing? Go do what I told you to do." Right, exactly. It just so, doesn't so, work. No, it doesn't. And so Google. So this is a big problem for Google, and it's it's already a problem on mobile. And you see, like in mobile, they're st- they've stuffed the page with now three ads, and they did. It's funny. So last a year ago, Google's quarter three results. So like, oh, we had this huge explosion in mobile revenue. Things are great. Da 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 da. And what happened was they put a third ad in the page so that when you, for many, like for high monetizing results, you only saw ads on the first screen. You had to scroll down to get the results. Like basically a paid inclusion model if you you want to be sort of mean about it. And now, so it's funny because the last Google earnings call, uh, the CFO was trying to like talk down the next quarter. Like what we're going to see, it's a year since we made changes to the mobile experience. It was like, oh, what's going to happen once you don't have the nice year over year comparison of like three ads versus two. Anyhow, the, the, the general point is that their business model doesn't translate as well as their technology does. And so th- What's so interesting about the Pixel and why I'm so fascinated by the fact that the assistant is only on the Pixel is what is a way to make money? Well, how does Apple make money? <laughs> Apple makes money because we want to use iOS. We think iOS is is the superior operating system. Well, how do you get iOS? There's only one way to get it, and that's to buy a physical phone from Apple. You can't install it on another phone. It's like the, it's the Mac model brought to the phone, right? Apple has a monopoly on iOS for all intents and purposes. It kind of sounds like, and again, we'll see how it turns out in the long run, And but it makes conceptual and strategic sense that Google's doing that with Google Assistant. If we move to a world where assistants matter, and if the Google Assistant is far and away the best assistant, which I think is is it's reasonable, there's a scenario where you could see that being the case, just given the sort of company that Google is and what they're good at. If you want Google Assistant, how are you going to get it? You, you're going to buy a Google phone that costs $650 and over time, if they get scale, has a big profit margin. Or cost, something, really, cost some amount of money where the amount of profit that they can turn on the phone is worth it for the expected lifetime that you'll be using the phone, that they can just give you you know, the, their, their best assistant software, quote-unquote, for free. Totally. And I, I bet if Assistant does end up on other phones, it's probably – Google very well may be charging for it. Right. And, and it, it, it's, it's so fascinating because – you don't. You rarely see companies like completely changing their business model. But it, 
it's interesting because it theoretically it makes so much sense. Like, it, I can totally. Believe, I, I'm a general proponent of voice computing. I think it's going to be a bigger deal than, than people think. I'm not saying it's going to like touchscreens aren't going away, phones aren't going away, just like computers didn't go away. But the fact that you can talk anywhere, I mean putting aside the in the crowd on a subway. I think we're going to have like our assistant voices, kind of like how, I mean, 10 years ago, no one thought we'd be looking at screens all the time, but we do. Like I can see in 10 years, people are kind of muttering all the time. We'll One see. Of, if I could ever get, a, I don't know, I'm just ripping somebody off, but if I could ever get like a Gruber's Law, uh, it would be that anything that's anything in computing that's slow will eventually be fast. Yes. And, and it, it, it's Moore's Law. That, uh, that, yeah. That's... That, yeah, that's who I'm ripping off. I don't never heard of it. Never heard of it, but I guess I'm ripping it off. Um, and you know, it's, what were touchscreens like 20 years ago, 25 years ago? They were terribly slow, right? There was, you know, it, it's eventually though they got super fast. And voice computing is so much faster than it used to be, but it still is slow. I don't care who you think the best is, whether you think it's uh, Alexa with an Echo or Google or Siri or whatever. I've never seen a single one of them answer a question as quickly as a human being can, right? right. Like if I'd ask you and you've been outside today, what's the weather like outside? You can answer me way faster than any of those things can right now. There's a certain latency to it and there's a certain even slowness to the way they read read back the answer that's, that's so much faster if you have a, a you know, if you're actually talking to a human, but eventually voice interaction with computers will be as fast as we can proceed. It'll get faster than, you know, it, it'll, it'll get so fast that they could go faster than we could even listen to them. And at that point, it'll be so much more useful. Right. And the other thing is, uh, I'm a big believer that the more pervasive a uh, computing is, the more it will be used. Like there's lots of stuff that is better and more quote unquote efficient to do on a computer that we do on our phones now. And I, I'm a very heavy phone user. Like I, I, I actually, I mainly only write on my computer. Like I, the vast majority of my reading and research and everything is, is, is on the phone. And the, the it, convenience always ends up trumping sort of like efficiency. Like if something's available, we use it. And the idea that like, I think the AirPods are such a are such a fascinating product because they point to this future, right? This idea that you can set the AirPods up and now they're paired to your watch. And you can, it's not here yet, but you can see a future where you just always have the AirPods and watch with you, whereas you might, getting your phone in your pocket might be a pain or maybe you don't have your phone with you or, or all those sorts of things. Again, we're not there yet. We're not close to there yet, but you, over time, convenience ends up trumping everything, particularly to your point once Gruber's Law kicks in. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I, I've definitely been thinking about the pixel as being almost like I've written about it, that it's, it's so uh, utterly iPhone like that. It's not even to me, it, it almost goes beyond shameful because they're not even, they're not even hiding it, you know, in terms of it, it, it even has the exact same prices. It's literally the same price for the same capacity. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, obviously it's not a clone. It's not meant to be indistinguishable, but it, especially from the front face, um, it's so iPhone-like. I mean, the fact that the chin is completely symmetric with the forehead, even though they don't even have a button down there. Yeah. It, aesthetically, it's, it, it, it is so iPhone-like. It is ridiculous. Uh, 
but I don't. It, to me, it's it's not shameful in the way that like Samsung's copying was or HTC's copying has been. It's I would be embarrassed to put my name on it as a design, but I kind of understand it. And it's there's almost like a tacit like with the with Samsung, it's always there was always a sort of ooh, Apple, we never heard of them sort of aspect to the accusations that they copied. Whereas with Google, like in their initial PR for the Pixel, they 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 mentioned the iPhone and said, yes, we all, we tried to make it different in certain ways. Um, but there's sort of an implicit, yes, these are, you know, this, these phones are based on the world where the best phones are iPhones and the phones that yeah. the people that we're trying to sell to are currently using iPhones. And, 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 and it's into in what we've been talking about. It extends all the way to the model. Like in this, in this case, Google, and so it is an integrated model. And, and integration in computing does not, is not, I think it's been constrained. People only think about the OS and, and, and yeah. the software. You can integrate anywhere in the value chain. In this case, Google's using, like the Android is, is, is you know, firewalled off from the Google Pixel team. I mean, we'll see how much that actually is the case in practice. But that actually makes sense. And it makes sense because what does Android provide for, for Google? It provides the ecosystem, provides all the apps, and apps are table stakes, right? right. And so keeping a standard Android that makes that, you know, in general, the compatibility problem has gotten better for, you know, for Android development in general. And keeping that going is good. You don't yeah. want to... You don't want to differentiate it too much, but that's okay because that's not what that's not what is selling the Pixel phone. It, what's selling the Pixel phone is the assistant, and so the integration that matters here is the integration of the assistant with the hardware, where the assistant is the differentiating factor, which is why you buy, and the hardware is how they make the money. It, it, well, again, the problem is it makes tons of sense in theory. The issue is that Google changing business models is really hard. Google has shown no aptitude in being. In, in selling stuff. And it's there's a lot of work that has to be done. You have to set up distribution. You have to do a lot of marketing. You have to spend, like Samsung spends like $400 million in marketing a year or something like that. They have connections with every single phone seller in, in the world and carrier. Like that's all stuff that Google's going to have to build. And it's not stuff that Google has traditionally been very good at, to, to say the least. I mean, Google is like the, the whole, like, we operate at scale and we don't deign to get into the mucky details. Like, they've had the fortune of being able to do that their whole existence. And whether they can pull that off is, I think, something that's very fair to be skeptical about. I, I don't know how what the what the upside is for pixel sales. Like, where where what's the good scenario? What's the best case scenario? I don't think it's very big, at least not, well, not in not the this next year. year or two. Right. I mean, and again, yeah, you know, who knows what could happen three, four, five years, but a good start, you know, can get you there. And there's sort of a, you know, like look at Tesla, where I just linked to a thing today, which really shocked me, honestly, that Tesla has sold more, you know, in that hundred thousand dollar range class sedans, more of them than BMW and Mercedes combined last year. They sold more Teslas uh, than the Mercedes S class and BMW Seven Series combined. That's that's unbelievable to me I, I i can't believe that and part of that is just being in philadelphia where tesla is not have anywhere near as big a presence as it surely does in the valley and maybe other places i see way more uh mercedes s classes and bmw 7 series on the road than i do tesla but i have no reason to doubt it but it's eye-opening it's it's a way to gain a foothold and and you know seven hundred dollar cell phones are clearly the cell phone equivalent of you know the s class you know level of of car where you know around the world globally most people can't afford it um 
you know, and that's where Android has their foothold is Android completely dominates the, I only have a hundred dollars or $200 to spend on my phone. Right. Here, well, here. It, it, well, the, 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 the uh, sorry, uh, well, two things I would say is, the, oh, sorry. You go first. <laughs> you go, you go first. No. Uh, okay. Two things I would say is one, I don't think you'll be able to judge the pixel. And this is gonna be a challenge for Google internally to remember this by its one year or two year sales, because you, you just, you, it's impossible to come out of the gate and sell like tens of millions of units. And, and there's gonna be plenty of opportunities for Apple people to mock the sales number and say, Oh, Apple sells that much in a week or whatever. And that's going to be totally valid. But if Google is, is serious about this being a genuine business where they actually do make money from hardware, which again, all indications are is, 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 why would you make it exclusive if that's not the goal? It takes years to build that sort of business. And so this, they would need to start now in 2016 to have a viable business in 2019 or 2020. And if you think about it, that's probably when these assistants are going to be getting really, really good. And so you, again, if they have the fortitude to pull this off, you could see a world where in 2020, Google has this unbelievable assistant. It's only available on their phones. They have volume up. They have all the connections with carriers up. I remember how long it took Apple to get in every country in the world, right? right. How long it took them to get in every carrier, especially if you want to control the user experience like, like Google clearly wants to do. It That takes years to build up. And by starting now, ideally, once Google Assistant is good enough that it's actually a reason to buy, then they will be placed to do it. So it may, uh, in that respect, I think the timing does make sense. Again, I just don't know if Google has it in them to go through that multi-year slog of building this sort of business. Uh, but there is certainly a theoretical reason why it makes a ton of sense. I think I, I really I have a hunch that maybe the the pixels might be a a, a miniature hit in the valley. I almost feel like they're almost built for at least this year to be like a popular phone in in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, because I, for whatever reason, I think Google has an outsized presence on iPhone users in that area. I think there's an awful mm-hmm. lot of people who have iPhones but use uh, a lot of Google apps and like maybe use you know like the Gmail app instead of Apple Mail and. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know how many of them use Chrome on iOS instead of Safari, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it doesn't even get to use its own rendering engine. But, um, and I've seen articles along that line, and I see it at press events when I go there, and I see a lot of the people I know and friends I have who are less Apple centric and more cover the whole industry. Uh, almost uh, the most common scenario I see with them with the cell phone is that they use an iPhone. And when I get a look at what they use, or if I see their, you know, dock or, you know, the home screen, the first home screen, an awful lot of them use uh, Google apps on their iPhone. Um, and I have a half written piece. I haven't, I haven't finished it yet, but uh, Lauren Good at The Verge had an article this week about how iMessage is the glue that keeps her on her, keeps her using an iPhone instead of switching to an Android phone. Um, and the underlying premise of it is that there's nothing else on iOS that keeps people tied to it, which I completely disagree with. Um, but it also reminds me of, let me see if I have it on my clipboard, an article from last year by a guy, uh, nope, not on my clipboard, um, uh, Buzzfeed who wrote an article, um, I think his name is Charlie Warzel, um, um, 
that was more or less like, hey, everybody I know uh, hides all the built-in Apple apps in folders and stuff like that and replaces them with uh, with uh, Google apps. Uh, what, is, what are the names that you use for the folders where you uh, hide all of your Apple apps? And it's a bunch of screenshots of um, stuff like Crapple and junk and stuff I don't use. And I, I, I use the I use the Apple emoji. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh I I don't I think they're sort of in a bubble where I think most people use the default. I th- and uh, nothing better exemplifies it than the popularity of Apple Maps. Right? That by far and away the most popular map app on iOS is Apple Maps. And like when I was on Josh Topolsky's show uh like i don't know not real recently but sometime within the last year and he like couldn't believe that i use apple maps and for me where i live uh you know and i know you and i've spoken about this that you go around the world and it's very different but here where i live it's really great uh and the only thing i used to use google maps for was transit and now apple maps has transit in the cities i go to so it it's good for me but i can see why normal people i mean it, for me it's an informed decision where i compare it to google maps and i just don't like the interface of google maps um, but for most people, the defaults are good enough, right? Um, yep. but in the Valley where people really want to use these Google apps, but they want a really good phone, I could see the pixel really taking off and I can kind of see how that might then therefore lead to, uh, good coverage, right? If, if it becomes a thing where half the people, you know, who are your peers in San Francisco and the Valley are using Maybe half's too high, but you know, if a big chunk of them are using Pixel phones, it inflates the the coverage as to how popular it's going to be or how popular it is. Maybe I mean, and it's certainly Google couldn't ask for. I mean, the the, the real company that's threatened by this is Samsung because I mean, there's there's been two pr- real premium phone sellers that's Apple and Samsung, and Huawei's done very well in China. But in general, those are the two in most of the world, and, and Pixel is going to peel off. I think. Uh, Samsung users before they do iPhone users. Your Valley exception might be true. I, I I definitely think the iMessage point is a huge one. I've written this previously. One thing that people always complain about is they say they look at like the valuation of like Tencent who has, has WeChat or they look at Wine wants to IPO or whatever and they say, oh, Apple, one of the reasons that Apple's stock is too low is because it doesn't properly account for the value of iMessage. <laughs> and I actually think, I think that's silly. And the reason is the iMessage value is accounted for in the value of the iPhone. Because I absolutely, this is a classic example of Apple's sort of vertical strategy where iMessage helps sell more iPhones. And to take iMessage cross-platform to make it like these other messaging services, yes, that might make iMessage quote-unquote more valuable because Apple could theoretically monetize it. But that would be offset by the reduction in the value of the iPhone because that's right. it's no longer exclusive the iPhone and no I, I like when I broke my arm last year and I wanted to switch to Android because the voice dictation is it's it's unbelievably better it's like a completely different universe I actually I have Google in my in my dock on my iPhone because the voice search just works in, incredibly well even though like I find the actual Google app super annoying to use, I'd rather it be in Safari. But w- if I'm on the go, like it just works really, really well. The problem is, one, the whole scrolling thing drives me up the wall. But two, iMessage is a problem. Like it, I, For folks like you and in general people that I'm connected with in tech, if I don't talk to them via DM, it's almost all via iMessage. And it, it's, it's very valuable, and it's a, it's a real advantage for Apple. Yeah. 
And I think it's no coincidence that the only real software for Android that Google has really talked about this year is Allo and Duo, the replacements for i you know their their answers to iMessage and FaceTime. Yeah. But I I think that they're kind of stuck in that regard though because I don't think uh, I don't think it's going to solve the problem of getting people to switch. Like if yeah, anybody's I mean, people- already got everybody they know on their family on FaceTime, they're not going to get anybody to install Duo. Yep. No, the, the the number one feature of any messaging app has nothing to do with the interface, has nothing to do with stickers, all the stuff as much as I may love them. The number one feature of any messaging app is do your friends and family use it? Like nothing else matters out, outside of that. And right. and yeah, it, 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 of course, in like Asia or whatever, iMessage isn't a, a lock-in for Apple because everyone uses some some other app. But in the U.S. in particular, it it definitely is it definitely is a, a big advantage for them. Yeah. Uh, so I'll write more about that soon. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, let's parlay this right into talking. Do you want to talk about Siri? I feel like that's too long of a, of a thing. Yeah, and I, I think it can, well, I guess I would tie it to what we talked about with the Pixel phone. And someone, I, I, like I wrote a, my article was about this last, last week, uh, Google and the limits of strategy is, is what it's called. But someone did a great job. They basically summarized the entire article in a tweet, which uh, I don't know if that speaks well of me or well of them, uh, <laughs> or poorly of me. But basically they said the, the problem for the future is that uh, Apple has the right business model, but the bad technology and Google has the good technology but the bad business model. And that's oversimplifying it as necessitated by a tweet, but I think that gets at it. I mean, yeah. I've we've talked about a ton about the fundamental problems Apple has with Siri, whether that be just really the the my core th- core thing, and this is hard to quantify and so but we've talked about it like building a phone that is as polished and and usable by by millions of people and is so great like Apple does. The mindset and approaches and everything about an organization and the sort of people that want to work there and all that sort of stuff is very, very different from building an iterative web, web service that is self-learning and self-improving. Like just the, the entire way a company is structured, what's valued, the sort of people who want to work there, all these sorts of factors go in different directions. If you're good at the sort of stuff that makes Siri good, would you rather work at Google or would you rather work at Siri? You'd rather work at Google, and you're, everything about the company is going to support you in doing that. If you want to build beautiful hardware and finished products and, and, and an operating system that's fully tied into it and is this, 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 this jewel, would you rather work at Google and build a Pixel phone? Would you rather work at Apple and, and build an iPhone? And that's a very that's at an individual level, but all that stuff goes into the whole organization. And so people always, because I talk about Apple services a lot, and, and Apple fans in particular just get really annoyed at me all the time, and which is unfortunate because when I am criticizing Apple's culture and organizational structure and way of thinking in the context of services, that is the exact same thing as complimenting Apple in their ability to create amazing products. Like they are one in the same thing. I'm not saying Apple is incompetent. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm saying by virtue of optimizing for one, there is a trade-off. And same thing for Google. By virtue of optimizing for a services iterative approach, there's a trade-off on the on the other side. You can see Amazon's the most extreme example. Amazon is the most modular, most 
like iterative. All their teams are expected to not even talk to each other, right? No integration at all. They're all supposed to have standard interfaces that interact from inside the company all the way out. And that's why they can build something like Amazon Web Services that is super scalable, super modular, all this sort of stuff. What happens when a company like that tries to build a phone? It's the biggest piece of fucking shit I've ever used in my life. Yeah. Like it, And that doesn't make Amazon's dumb. It means they're by optimizing so strongly for one approach, it makes them brilliant in the areas where that approach fits, and it makes them terrible in the other areas. And that terrible, that terribleness is a sign of strength. So the worst is being mediocre and just stuck in the middle. We have to go quick, but my observation. So this whole thing got kicked off by, a, well, in my opinion, a great Walt Mossberg column. I mean, truly, really great, which was headlined, Why Does Siri Seem So Dumb? And I thought it was very fair in, in evaluating the current state of Siri and ex- expressing a sort of exasperation that, look, Siri debuted five years ago, literally like five years to the month, and it just doesn't seem five years better. And it seems like it should be better, and some of these things that don't work uh, should work. And it, it's confounding when the same thing works on your iPhone but doesn't work on your iPad. You know, like he was talking about, like, he'd ask something about Tim Cook, and he's got Tim Cook's contact card, a nice name drop, Walt. Um, uh, <laughs> but on his one device, it knows that it, Tim Cook is one of his contacts and knows how to contact him. And on the other one, it just gives him, like, the Wikipedia page for Tim Cook because it thinks you're talking about him as, like, a celebrity. But why in the world wouldn't that work the same way? It's, and and how do you how do you debug that as a user? You can't because it's a black box and it's very frustrating. And then my little response to it was just about the frustration that they still can't do multi-stage answers. And it was a legitimate thing I wanted to do. I'm a political junkie. I don't want to miss the next presidential debate. So I asked, when's the next presidential debate? I got the answer. And then I said, add that to my calendar. And there's Siri cannot do that. It can't even maintain that level of, of multi-step stage answers. And to me, five years in, it seems to me like that's something it ought to be able to do. And um, my other... The the, the thing with the presidential debate is it shows it now, but that was because the first presidential right. debate, Siri didn't know at all. And it was a big thing on Twitter where people were pointing out that every assistant can tell you when the presidential debate is, but Siri couldn't. So I, I think the, actually Apple manually added that in in response to the, the uproar. Yeah, the uproar. Um, my other point in my article was that the big problem Apple faces, two big problems. One is just making Siri better. But two is even if they succeed and make it better, I think that there's a huge problem where so many people have been burned by trying Siri and feeling like a fool because it doesn't work that they won't even notice. And and I, I notice it one area where Twitter or where Siri they call it a Siri feature, but the just voice dictation, just if you hit the little microphone and dictate what you're trying to say into the text field. It works so much better than it used to, and it's so super useful to me as a pedestrian in a city. I dictate texts all the time, and it's it, it's I don't know what the accuracy rate is, but it's in the high nineties, and it's not perfect, and it can still improve it, but it's way way useful, super useful. And I know a lot of people who never even use it because they tried it two or three years ago, and it was so bad that they've never gone back to it. Um, and I think that that's true Siri wide. Uh, here's the thing I've noticed in the response to my article. In the response to my article, especially on Twitter, but it's so many people who are like, finally, you know, uh, you know, an article acknowledging that Siri is complete dog shit. You know, it's fine. You know, Siri is completely useless. And in a link to my article, that's not what I wrote. I didn't say it's completely useless. I'm, I'm disappointed in the state of Siri, but I'm not saying that. But people are so angry at Siri, and I think it's because. 
this is my theory, that the whole reason that people become Apple users and the iPhone is so popular that the iPhone clearly is selling to people who really aren't really like fans of Apple, but people who read Daring Fireball and have Apple devices are what I would consider Apple's core audience. People who want to pay a little extra money to get really good products. And because they really care about getting good products and they're not price sensitive, when part of the experience is definitely not premium, it infuriates them. Well, it, it, the other thing is, I think Siri itself is infuriating. And, and I despise like Siri's like cutesiness. So I, I posted this on, on, on Twitter last month, this example. So I, and this is, I, this is word for word exactly what happened. So I'm going to quote Ben, hey, Siri. Remind me to set my lineup tomorrow at 10 a.m. for fantasy football. Of course, Siri, just yeah. turned on my phone. It's going to turn on for everyone listening. Yeah, you got to say, hey, Dingus. Hey, Dingus. <laughs> hey, Dingus. Sorry. Hey, Dingus. Remind me to set up my lineup tomorrow at 10 a.m. Then, then, then Dingus says, okay, I'll remind you. And then I say, make that a weekly reminder. Like the classic, like the next step thing. And then, and then Siri says, okay, here is a weekly reminder. And it made a new reminder for me on Tuesday at 9 a.m. Like it's just <laughs> a totally random time that wasn't even right. And then I go, and then I say, delete that reminder. Then, then Siri says, okay, I've deleted it. Make sure you don't forget. And like, I, it's like, <laughs> like it's one thing to fail, right? But then you, the layering on of the cutesiness and marks just is infuriating. And I, I, it, it, what I think is the problem is it really puts it in like the uncanny valley, like the, the sort of movie term that's traditionally around animation where, you know, like the original Pixar movie, all Pixar movies, but particularly when they started, they made the humans very non-human-like. Right. Because, like, Polar Express is kind of the, the classic example of this. If you if you make it very human-like, but it's not quite right, there's something in our brains that are repulsed by it. Yeah. And it's called the uncanny valley, right? If you need to be all the way to, to the good side. And the problem is, and I think Apple took the, the wrong approach and from the beginning by making it this sort of assistant sort of thing. I think that's why Google, that's one of the reasons Google calls their assistant Google. They don't call it, and it's more robot-like. It's it's it, because there there's an aspect here where, like, remember we talk about documents and documents would just disappear, and we just got mad at ourselves for forgetting to save. Right. Like in retrospect, that's terrible. But from a product perspective, there's something to be said for people blaming themselves instead of blaming the product, right. or at least having a little empathy for it. Like if Siri screwed, this is a hard request. To be fair, I did the multi-step request, and Siri can't do that. I should have known better. But had Siri failed, I'd be like, "Oh, duh." I, well, I need to like be sometimes, more explicit. Except sometimes when Siri can. Except sometimes it can. Right. Well, which is which is fair, but it's like. It, 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 there's no acceptance of like series limitations within the way that series presented series comes across and presents itself as this, as something that's way more capable than it actually is. It way oversells its capabilities in part by this being cutesy and having these jokes and stuff like that. And that's just not the reality of, of, of what it is. And I think that exacerbates it. Like there is no feature on any computer device I use that like literally in, like enrages me except for the way Siri does. And it's always these cutesy things when it's totally screwed up. Like it just fail. Like, just, like, but that's, I don't know. Just it, 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 anyhow, I, I've, I've, I think I've, I might've given you this rant before, but it, it yeah. is one of my biggest rants about Apple products is the, the, the failure to fail gracefully. All right. We've, we're way over time. Let's, but you, do you want to talk about AR VR? You definitely do, but you only, have, I'm only going to give you two <laughs> minutes. I'm going to give you two minutes. 
I just thought I thought it was. I actually wrote this yesterday, and then Tim Cook today in Tokyo said something about you know Apple's more interested in augmented reality than virtual reality because you know it's part of being being in the real world, which is something I, I've always generally I, I agree with. I, I've always viewed there there's kind of there's two types of computing. There's immersive computing like video games and movies and stuff like that, and there's like uh, accompanying commuting, uh, 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 there's a better word for it, but like that's like your phone. It's with you everywhere. It's the stuff that goes with you makes and makes your your life better. And versus one is like an escape from life. And to me, that's always been the division between virtual reality and augmented reality. And, and it was so interesting. And, and I always go back one of my favorite, one of the best Steve Jobs qu- quotes. And there's a lot of them, obviously, but the computer is a bicycle for the mind. Right? right. That is that is very much in this augmented sort of approach where. You, you, it, the goal, the goal of a computer, and this is something that's very, I think, core to Apple, is to make you better, to enhance the experience, to make you more productive. And I think it's one of the reasons why Apple's never really had the gaming gene in them. They've never really been about escapism. Obviously, yeah. the iPhones become dominant in gaming, but that's almost like an accident of history. The, Apple's thinking has always been this direction. And it, the reason I wrote about this yesterday, I wrote about that quote when Facebook bought Oculus uh, a year and a half ago or two and a half years ago, whenever it was. And the there was just the Oculus keynote last week. And in the keynote, I just found it really disquieting because uh, Mark Zuckerberg went on this this big thing about, oh, I'm an engineer, I want to make the world better, we can make everything better, blah, blah, blah. And he's talking about these immersive VR experiences. And it, it felt like... Th- an attempt, it, it, we're going to create a new reality because the current one isn't great. And well, leaving aside the fact that the current one isn't great, arguably because Facebook is so busy creating everyone's individual reality that once we're all in the same place, we have, like it all kind of explodes. It's just such a fundamentally different way of thinking about computing than than the Apple one. And it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. Of course, there's like, oh, we're going to go from VR to AR. But it's just it's a different way of thinking about computers thinking about computing the way the world works i for one am certainly on the apple approach but it's going to be fascinating to see how it actually plays out you know over the next several years you made my point exactly which is that of course apple's more interested in ar versus vr because it's the same reason that they've never been a powerhouse in gaming exactly and vr is obviously uh, a great going to be it's already it's playstation vr is shipping it's you know it's going to be a big deal for gaming it's sitting at my it's sitting at my house in, in wisconsin actually is it really wow I, yeah it, i just just got delivered yesterday it might be coming down the chimney at christmas here uh <laughs> hopeful jonas better not listen to the podcast uh no he definitely doesn't listen to the podcast well he doesn't believe in santa so it's you know <laughs> it's, you know it's already in negotiations he's missing uh, out all over the place yeah uh you know, and there might be other applications for it as well. But gaming is obvious. It's not. I don't even think it's a question that it's going to be a factor in gaming henceforth. Um, AR is much more of an Apple-like technology. I find it interesting that Tim Cook is opening his mouth about it, though. It's a very un-Apple-like thing to comment on it in general. You know, but Tim Cook's always been a little bit more open about Steve Jobs about stuff like that, like the whole thing where at the one conference, the the Walt Mossberg. Kara Swisher conference where he said that the wrist is an interesting opportunity on wearables. Right. Yeah. Like two years. And meanwhile, the Apple and meanwhile, meanwhile, Steve Jobs is ridiculing video on 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 iPods. When exactly. The, right. The product already existed. <laughs> right. Steve Jobs would have been like, nobody wears watches anymore. 
yeah. like up till two days before they announced the Apple exactly. Watch. Exactly. He would exactly. have said, watch is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Nobody wears a watch anymore. <laughs> so the, I mean, the other thing is interesting. It, it, we don't have time to talk about it, but I think the Snapchat spectacles are absolutely fascinating. One of the most interesting new products in, in a while. Is that the Snapchat thing you wanted to talk about? Yeah, the yeah, and the reason, yeah, yeah, the reason it's so interesting is one of the many w- reasons why Google Glass went wrong is there was like it was like a novelty item, right? Like, it, yes, it's like why why would you wear them? So they packed. It's like the Apple Watch in some respects. So they packed on a video camera and a speaker and all this sorts of stuff. And, and it's like, well, hey, then what's the point? There was a store on Android, but it wasn't really connected to your phone. It wasn't integrated. It was just the, this contraption for a lot of money you put in your head and. Then what? You look like an idiot. What's so fascinating about this? And didn't even get a good. Didn't even get a good AR display. Yeah. No. Yeah. The whole thing was terrible. It, it was. It was. It's not that. And and and. So the spectacles come out like, oh, Google Glass was a terrible idea. Why isn't it better? Well, the reason to do better is it, there's an obvious use case. Like you are Snapchat already exists. You already have people following. You already have the stories. You already have the memories thing where the, this video can go. You already have this idea of ten second video, and this is just an easier way to do it. And it's like they created the need for this product, and now this product is coming in to fill the need. Again, need may be overstating it, but there's an obvious place where these fit, and that's such a powerful thing when it comes to creating sort of a new category. But then. Once you have them on your, once you own them, once they're there, then you can start building out all the other stuff. Like you can do the display stuff, you can do the speaker stuff. And thanks to Gruber's law, that's going to get more and more viable over time. And it's just, it's really fascinating because the hardest thing is like, why do you wear the watch? Why do you wear the, the AirPods? The AirPods are more like the spectacles in this. Why do you wear the AirPods? Well, the iPhone 7 doesn't have a headphone jack anymore and you need wireless headphones. Like the reality is the potential of the AirPods is amazing. Like we're getting to computers in your ears and that like that, the potential that's unbelievable for all the things we talked about, but you have to, you have to, you know, to use the term like cross the chasm, you have to have a reason for them to exist. And there's an obvious reason for AirPods to exist. And now they have the foothold and they can expand that same thing with the spectacles when it comes to things like augmented reality. Like I, I, that will arguably be one of Apple's biggest competitors in the very long run because they have a way to get on your face. And that's the hardest challenge for any sort of wearable. I will just add that Gruber's law isn't just Moore's law because some aspects of things that have were slowing have gotten faster. Don't really have to do anything to do with getting more transistors onto a CPU. Uh, yeah, no, I know. I've given you a hard time. I know, but I just want to defend <laughs> myself that it's anything you can think of that's slow, like wireless networking. Well, wireless networking got a lot faster, uh, you know, it had nothing to. I, I don't really think that's related to Moore's law. It's it's just a general. You know, it's even more more obvious. Yeah. No. Anything. Yeah. No. It, it, I, it, I, yeah. Think, I think the thing about Snapchat that the glasses or whatever they call them, the goggles, whatever the hell they are, it's spectacles. it's an honest it's an honest product, and they clearly have a very. I, I don't want them. I don't even. I don't really understand Snapchat. I don't want them. But at least. It, it to me is a very honest product, meaning it's whoever designed it and whoever's pitching it gets it. Whereas the thing with Google Glass that made it such a joke is that it was so pretentious and they thought it was so goddamn serious. And it was like it such was technology an, for technology's sake. It was such an emperor has no clothes situation where it's like, you got to be kidding me. That thing is, is a joke and you're treating it like it's the next big step or first step in a, you know, a new direction. Um, uh, 
Whereas the Snapchat thing, they're just what they're saying about it. It seems to me exactly what it is. You know, they're describing it as a toy. It's fun. It's not supposed to be serious. This isn't. You know, it's just a thing to have fun with. Uh, and that's exactly what it looks like. And it's exactly how it's priced, isn't it? Like a hundred bucks or something like that. Yeah, one hundred and thirty, I think. And, right. and, and and that's the best way to launch a new category is as a toy. Like, yeah. it, it, and the iPhone. What, what was the ridicule about the iPhone from like the from Microsoft and Rim? Oh, it's it's it, it's nice, but when people want to actually do work, right. they're going to use our products, and yeah, it's it's. So I, I it, it's a compelling space. I, I yeah, you're right. Apple's forwardness about it is interesting, uh, but it's some, certainly one that's going to be very interesting to watch. I don't get his. I don't get why he's opening his mouth out about it, but you know, work for a watch. I guess I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's probably. I think that there's you know the. There's, I would imagine there's stock issues or stock stock price considerations. It's all to have the new shiny out there is yeah. is beneficial. Um, I don't know. And I guess maybe <laughs> they've resigned themselves that anything hardware related is going to leak anyway. So my thought was maybe you know if it's true that the car thing is really downsized or set back or something like that, it's well, <laughs> we need a plan B. It's going to be <laughs> AR. No, of course Apple's looking into AR. Um. I don't have anything else. That's the bottom of my copious notes. Maybe these uh, keeping these notes is too is is a problem because now we have the show ran long. Well, no, I think I think we we had like multiple digressions and general meandering talk for the first like two hours, and then in like thirty five minutes we covered like multiple shows worth of material. Oh my so god, we didn't even get for us. We didn't even get to the fact that my beloved Dallas Cowboys are playing your beloved Green Bay Packers this weekend in uh, Lambeau, right at Lambeau Field. That's an yes. away game. Yes, uh, the the house of Des Bryant horrors, which I think he will be back. He will. Be I think he is going to be back. I think he is set to be back. Uh, and I think the the I think Vegas has the line at uh, Green Bay by four. So here's the question: If if Tony Romo comes back, uh, who do you want to be the starting quarterback? I want Tony Romo to be back. I feel like he deserves it. But it, it I is, feel like it, I feel like he's 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 back and he's on a short leash. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the issue great. is he, the problem has never been that he's you know bad when he's healthy. It's the the problem is he's he's broken down. Yeah. So I it, think it, even it, if he comes he's back, got, he's got a terrible run of luck. Right. I do. Th- well, they were great last year. Well, they were a great record. No, last two years year, right? ago. Two years apart. ago. Oh, two years ago. Okay. Yeah. Last year was the year where he missed almost all the whole season, and they were terrible without him. So I think it would be, you know, but it's, well, perhaps I will do you. Fa- I think we will do you a favor this week and expose expose Prescott. So it is be possible easy, easier to insert Romo back. In that's the that's actually true. Where it would actually solve like a a, a a a bad outing by Prescott in in Lambo would actually ease the political pressure there. Um, the thing I keep thinking about is the Tom Brady Drew Bledsoe back. Yeah, oh God, it, the, must, it was like what forty years ago. It feels like, but <laughs> Drew Bledsoe was like the second highest rated passer in the AFC at the time and got injured, and a no name quarterback out of Michigan <laughs> named Tom Brady was picked in like the eight hundred and seventy third round of the draft, came in and, and won eight straight games, and Drew Bledsoe never took a snap again. Yep. No, that, that that that's that's the classic example. So we'll see. I I, I think it's gonna be. Rough. We have a great run defense. Uh, so if if Prescott is having to pass in long situations, not running play action, I think it's it's gonna be challenging for him. So we'll see. We'll, we'll see. I'm excited. I was excited last week watching Dallas play. Uh, uh, so we should put it. So what, what's what's our wager gonna be? 
Are you a betting man? What should we bet? I mean, I I, I'm not a betting man. I, I only do these sort of friendly wagers where I, I'm going against someone. You like steak dinner or something like that. Yeah, all right. Steak dinner next time we're, we're in town together. With the line or without the line? Oh, I'll take four points. <laughs> <laughs> straight up. Straight up. Should be straight up. That's, uh, what, what is the line anyway? Is it three or something? I think it's four. Four. So we're favored by and one and point, a, basically. Yeah, basically. Like in a neutral field, it would be one point. Which to me is a little, it's a little maybe, maybe Vegas is starting to get Dallas fever. Seems to me like seems to me like one point on a on a neutral field is a little a little optimistic for Dallas. Yeah, well, the problem is 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 Green Bay's especially the last couple of years given up a lot of backdoor covers. So I think that's that's probably part of it as well. Uh, we'll jump out and then what like like Detroit if like we were up well, what like twenty eight zero or thirty one zero or something ended up being thirty one twenty eight. Well, the thing to me is that Aaron Rodgers is in that class of quarterbacks where I would rather. I would rather be down. Uh, I'd rather be down, you know, two or three points, maybe even four points, and have Aaron Rodgers have the ball and two minutes on the clock, than have the lead and the other way around, yeah. right? And to me, that's worth three or four points. Like so, to me, you get three points for being at home, and you get three or four points for having a quarterback who, it, it with two minutes to go in the game, you'd rather you'd rather just have the other team score and get the ball back because you'd rather have the ball than let them run it down to zero. You know what I mean? I do. I do. Well, okay. I'll give you the points. All I'm, right. I'm feeling confident. Deal. And, Handshake. Uh, <laughs> virtual. In virtual <laughs> reality. All right. Thank you for being on the show, Ben. Everybody can get more Ben Thompson at the excellent stratechery.com. Everybody, if you're not a subscriber to Stratechery, you're, 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 I don't know what you're doing with your money, but you'd be better off uh subscribe into Stratechery. and after all, i have a steak i have a steak dinner to buy yeah actually yeah he's got a steak dinner <laughs> to buy and then uh your podcast is uh exponent fm with your co-host uh whose name i forget james allworth yep james allworth.fm so if you like hearing his voice you can get more of his voice before he's on the the talk show again i was hoping you're gonna do pull a dulcet tones <laughs> the dulcet tones you do have dulcet tones <laughs> Uh, it's also good to having you on the show when you're not drunk. <laughs> I, I am usually not drunk. No, for the I, record, I, I I think it. I don't think there's much difference really. <laughs>